As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. and salutations friends i am so i can't tell you how happy i am to be here because i just drove through another nightmare storm to get to the cabin and uh i got here with about 15 about 15 minutes before 9 p.m <laughs> so i knowing that i had a very important interview today this has been very stressful start to this uh to tonight but uh i'm in my right place i'm at the right time 
and and our guest is uh, in our green room waiting. Uh, I can't tell you. I first he. I first started hearing about Michael Schratt when it came to uh, Black Project research. And uh, boy, I was really incredibly impressed. Uh, I was incredibly impressed with his work on both UFOs and Black Projects. It seemed to me that he uh, was a dogged researcher going through every lead to get to the truth behind some of these great mysteries and I had to respect that of course so uh, I began to follow him and I would listen to every appearance if there was a conference appearance he did which was uh, which was put on YouTube I would watch it uh, and I've been following his work for quite some time most recently uh, we just uh, discussed his brand new book Dark Files which is an amazing book which covers a lot of different little-known UFO cases. So uh, his research has been uh, inspirational, at least to me, and also knowing uh, what it is that he does uh, only made me more interested. And I began to hear some interesting stories about Mr. Schratt and... Uh, we're going to get to uh, dive a little deeper into some of those things that I've heard. Some of them may be rumors, but some of them are true. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, his most recent book is uh, really, really probably my favorite book that I've gotten on UFOs in the last decade. It's called Dark Files, A Pictorial History, Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters, book one. And it's interesting to me is that this is just book one. He's got a treasure trove of information on this, on this, on these incredible subjects. So uh, please bear with me, friends. I'm having a real tough time here. It's bad enough that StreamYard forces me to use Windows. Now StreamYard is forcing me to use Firefox on top of that. Windows and Firefox, I, I really think that that is not not fair whatsoever <laughs> and uh it's interesting that paul hynek wrote the uh forward to his new book and uh it's really uh we're gonna we're gonna dive into it uh more deeply uh, and uh one second i'm just trying to get everything queued up here yeah, Paul Hynek about mr Schratt said michael Schratt has been an important figure in ufology for years a devoted and uh <laughs> boy big word indefatigable researcher in dark files he has done for ufology what ansel adams did for yosemite he has brought it to life with the summaries the engineered engineering quality drawings that he created and color illustrations he commissioned these cases simply jump off the pages and that i would definitely agree with in doing so he made these cases effectively available for more than a handful of researchers who have read or written descriptions themselves so enjoy this wonderful work michael has poured into dark files yeah and i would i would have to agree one of the best books that i've come across on ufos uh, in literally a decade if you like ufo artwork and you like ufos you're going to love this book so without further ado let's welcome our very special guest mr michael Schratt. Hi, Stephen. How are you? 
good. I'm happy. I'm happy that I didn't screw this up tonight. I, I had a real tough time getting here and getting everything set up. Everything's kind of temporary here. I'm not in my usual studio, so you'll have to forgive me if I'm a little bit out of sorts, but I think we're okay. That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some, I have a whole list of questions and I hope we sure. can get through, through most of them because, uh, you know, I've heard you interviewed before, but there's a lot of things that people that I, I know people haven't asked you. And one of the things I was most curious about is what got you started down this rabbit hole? Because you are one of those people that, uh, you know, I see some of my own obsession in you, like you're obsessed with this thing. You're collecting <laughs> things, you're writing things, you're drawing things, you're going on TV shows talking about this stuff. What is it that got you started? Hmm, okay, uh, well, from my earliest memory, my dad used to take me to a place called Victory Air Museum in Mundelein, Illinois. Oh, and it was cool. near Chicago. And what they had, Stephen, were these old World War II birds, but they were just parked out in this field, left alone. They awesome. were like branded and they were deserted and they were derelict and they were disrepaired and they were forgotten and half broken down. And the skins were oxidized and the windshields were cracked and they had weeds growing up. It just had this ghostly, otherworldly appeal to me. That's what started it for me. And I've never looked back from that point forward. So, you know, UFOs, so UFOs to you is just, an, you know, a strange, mysterious form of aircraft then? In, in a way, yeah, you can kind of say that. But, you know, from there, uh, my dad took me to Oshkosh, which is the biggest air show in the world. Went there. Yeah, for I've mentioned previously. My father was a huge aircraft. Uh, yeah, he was a huge, huge fan of of all aviation, and and he used sure. to take us to McGuire Air Force Base every year, and we would uh, see either the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels, and then yeah. they had all these displays. You could you could sit. They would let you sit in a jet airplane, an old one like an F four <laughs> Phantom, but it was still awesome to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's really how it started for me. And then just going to Oshkosh and looking at all the warbirds, the ultralights, the uh, kit planes, the antiques, just the whole part of it is just so impressive to me. And then things just led from there, uh, being within an hour's drive of QFOS, 2457 West Peterson Avenue, um, Mark Rodiger, the director there, he gave me full access to the entire QFOS library for three years straight. And I went through 60,000 cases there and really did go through all of them. Wow, that's interesting. So so when, though, the jump, when did the jump from from regular Earth aircraft, let's call them, yeah. <laughs> to UFOs happen? What was the first thing that really got you interested in actual UFOs? I would say around 94. Right, right, right around 94 is when it really started going. I yeah. would say that time frame. Yep. Yeah, and, you know... Uh, one of the things that's interesting about you is that you're you do these illustrations or you commission people also to do yeah. these illustrations. Yeah. And uh, this book is like if you like UFO artwork and I sure do, <laughs> this book is like every every other page is this amazing, you know, I almost want to blow them all up and make posters of them all. They're yeah. so good. Well, that was the idea, you know, because when you go through the cases at QFOS or the Gray Barker collection in Clarksburg, West Virginia, or QFOS or the Leonard Stringfield cases. Um, yeah, they read dry, right? So they need some sort yeah, of illustration. Yeah. I only pulled out the ones that had a really good description, a really good illustration or a sketch, 
and a flight path. If it had those three, then I pulled the case. And so from there, a lot of these cases were, they were rough. They needed to be cleaned up, brought into the 25th, 20th century. They had to really get cleaned up. So at that point, as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, either I would do an AutoCAD drawing or a SolidWorks drawing, full color rendering, or if it was really biological looking, I'd have artwork commissioned and then make it come alive. That was the whole point of it. Yeah. And and you know what? Uh, I, I just think that, uh, you know, this, this forward is dead on because, you know, a lot of these cases in this book, I heard of some of them, some of them I never even heard of, and I've been into this thing forever so mm -hmm. it's it's amazing this work that you did because you're going to open those cases up to whole new generations of people that may never have been exposed to them and the use of this amazing artwork really brings them to life it's not yeah. just words on a page because sometimes these you you know i'm sure you've got them there's ufo reports and mufon reports of sightings and they just read like you know like a bad science teacher wrote them you know and they're not they're not very engaging or interesting but the addition of these illustrations right and you did these all right from the witness descriptions or original sketches right well tom bogan gets the credit he, he's in the book he's in the forward part of the book he gets the credit for the majority of the color artwork now there's some in there that i've done and some of the line drawings i've done but some of the you know the, the best color artwork that's his work you know, i, I want to give him credit for sure um, <laughs> for sure you know, yeah. no doubt. but what's interesting is when i did these illustrations with tom we used google earth Stephen. so what that means is when we go back to these cases that are 40 or 50 years old and someone tells you that they parked a quarter mile west of such and such an in, inner intersection we take you there plus or minus five feet so you're looking at exactly where these things took place. Wow. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And now, of course, because I'm in Firefox, I'm having trouble sharing this. <laughs> but I'll get to it as I, I, we can progress with, with more yeah. questions. I have one big <clears throat> other question, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Yeah. But a, a few of people in my audience have said the same thing and, and wondered the same thing. I followed everything that I've seen you do. Yeah. But the one thing I saw you do that I went, hmm, that's weird. Why would he spend so much time on this? Was uh, you did uh, this. It was incredible work, I have to say. You did this huge uh, illustrated drawings and sort of lecture with slides on the Dan Burrish case. That's true. That's true. And I wanted to ask you, do you find, did you, 
was was there something about him that you first found credible and later didn't or or yeah, how do you feel he, about him he, now too? i think i've changed my mind on that case now for a number of reasons one of them being the fact that allegedly this facility called s4 is there in papoose lake however there's no test pilots that have ever even admitted there being a facility there. They would know, right? Because they flew around that whole area. We yeah, don't have and there's been recent flyovers allowed. Yeah, and, there's uh, been recent flyovers. Yeah, Solar, Solar Marshall, uh, he's got he's got the goods on that, and there's pictures, and there's zero there. There's no guard shack. There's no road. And, and you know, people like Bob Lazar or Burrish described taking a bus after they got off the Janet airline, and you couldn't get a bus through this desert sand for 50 miles to this remote location. It just Where's the road, evidence right? of the uh, hangar base with the textured exterior? Where's the evidence of that? Where is the evidence that, you know, pilots flying over, they would have seen something after all these years. They yeah. never reported anything there. There's no operating facility there. There's just nothing there. Well, yeah, and I think that we get into this situation of UFO profiteering that seems to be a problem because then people start make just to me, people are just making things up, you know, to sell the story. They go, well, we've corroborated this story with people that we're sure uh, and we checked into really worked at Area 51. And then I go, OK, what's their names? What was their titles? Can I speak to them and interview them and verify this? And you never get there. It's like all the information that's coming out about this so-called flying saucer base is very, very flawed. And Dan Burrish, of course, very flawed too, when we dig into his background. I mean, he was supposed to be a biologist there while he was a parole officer in Las Vegas. You know, there's, there's just, everything is always like, this story sounds great. There's just one big problem with it, you know, and the same for Bob Lazar with his education. And I know you've done a lot of great work on the Bob Lazar case as well, right? Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. And isn't, is that one, that one, if I, when I was growing up, I loved that story. I wanted that to be real. I so wanted that to be real, you know, <laughs> just as time went on and it got worse and worse and you get to like, okay, he's a convicted pimp now. And like, his education is terrible, you know, and fake. What what was it about the Bob Lazar case that attracted you, you know? Well, you know, looking into some of the things that John Andrews had collected, because he spoke to Bob. Oh, yeah, I wanted to mention they, that. Yeah, one of, my other, yeah. one of my other questions was going to be, you know, or, mm -hmm. or one of the other things we're going to explore is that you uh, are a bit of a historian and uh a conservationist when it comes to UFO material. John Andrews, for those that don't know, is responsible for all those cool models that came out of testers when you were a kid. All the UFO yeah. models, the Honey Boo, the sport model, and all of the, you know, like the stealth bomber. He did all the cool airplane models for testers. And somehow Michael got a hold of his all of his papers, right? And everything, his whole That's archive correct. of material, That's right? Cool. That is correct, yes. Yes, and I first the first time I'd, uh, that I've ever communicated with Michael was because I was trying to find out how much exactly Bob Lazar made from the testers model deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good so question. what are you what are you doing with all this John Andrews stuff? Oh you... well, I've incorporated into a lot of different things for sure. But it was an honor, it was a privilege to acquire the collection. I mean, 
uh, one of the highlights of my life, no question about it. Because John was such a gentleman. I only met him once, but he was such a gentleman. He could take a photograph and derive a three-view drawing from a blurry photograph five miles away. That's how good this guy was. He was the best of the best, really the best of the best. And yeah, a lot and of correspondence with a lot of different people in there. And uh, the guy was brilliant, no question about it. People are asking about your latest book. So it's only available in ebook format. Is that right? Correct. It Correct. Is I am going to make a hard cover or a soft cover sometime. I want a copy when you do. I'll pay you yeah, whatever you I'm want for it. it this is one of my favorite new books. I, you know, I couldn't put it down until I was done. And then I read it again and looked at the pic. And now I just look at the pictures and go, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much what I do. So the, the the deal with John Andrews is that he was not just a model maker. He had an interest in in like the Bob Lazar case and UFOs. He, did. And he was corresponding a lot with Bob Lazar, right? And you have some the of original, that. The original audio tapes were a part of that collection. The original interview audio tapes that were used to create the model were a part of that collection. Oh, that's amazing. I got to yep. twist your arm and mm -hmm. figure that thing out because <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the things that, that Michael Strad also did is do a comparison, a side-by-side -side comparison of Bob Lazar's sport model and billy myers beam ship and for those that don't know billy meyer like made fake ufos out of trash can lids and and hubcaps and things and then he hung them on strings and claimed that he was talking to aliens and he's been busted as a fraud and it's interesting a, a historical note is that bob lazar and gene huff got all the billy meyer material right before bob lazar decided that he was working on these things and his flying saucer that he says he worked on looks exactly like Billy Myers, almost. Michael did an amazing photo. I couldn't of that. say it any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you look on my Twitter, I'm sorry, I'm having a real trouble with this uh, with this screen sharing right now. Uh, if you look on my Twitter, I just posted that yesterday the, the comparison video, the comparison illustration between Bob Lazar and Billy Myers. So, do you think that that Bob Lazar copied that? It's too, it's, it's too similar. Possible. It's I too similar. We don't know, right? We just don't know. But here, here's the question I talk about. Bob talked about on a number of occasions in interviews where he had to reach above his head to touch the outer rim of the sport model, right? And if you know anything about the entry hatch on the sport model, it is integrated into that outer lip so mm -hmm. it wraps around the bottom just a little bit, and then it wraps around the top of the outer rim. But if the grays are three and a half to four feet tall, and the entry hatch is above his head, how do the grays get into the craft? <laughs> I know. I didn't, yeah, I didn't see a ladder. Yeah, I didn't see a ladder. There's a lot of there's a lot of inconsistencies, and there, and another thing I think Solar Warden pointed this out, and this is great. And he stumped, he got Bob Lazar to like go, hmm, that's a great question. And Bob Lazar had to go away and figure out an answer. Bob Lazar claimed that when you turned this this uh, propulsion system on, you know, you could throw a screwdriver at it and it would bounce off and all these other things. And so his question was, well, then how did you turn it off? You know, because it was all. He had no answer. <laughs> you know, and isn't that entire area Papoose Lake irradiated? Yes, that's another thing. And you, you know, can, there you would can... be dose badges, right, Stephen? There would be yeah. dose badges. Yeah, there if would be dose badges, the, sure. Yep. If you and, go to and the, the other Atomic Testing Museum, you can go to Las the Vegas. you can go to the Atomic Energy Commission and get 
get some data on how just how irradiated that area was. If the United States government were to be stupid enough to put a base there and make people spend a significant amount of time there, that would be yeah. a huge liability. People would be dropping dead yeah. left and right from, you know, radiation related sicknesses and cancer and things. There, Because you can go to the Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas and when you go through the exhibit hall and you wrap around just before it ends, there's a glass case on the right hand side. They've got like 30 different examples of dose badges there that people would wear on their on their lapel and on their shoulder area. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. There was never any mention of dose badges at S4, period. <laughs> but you know what is interesting is that I have at least a, a few sources, plus John Lear, who tell me with some confidence that Bob Lazar worked on radiation health monitoring equipment around Nellis and, and Area 51. So uh, that's interesting. He should know better than he should know about these these dose badges. Sure, sure. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, so besides this... Uh, this dark files, you know, can you tell us ha about the creation of that? And you got another whole archive of stuff that some of this stuff came out of, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, I drew it from all different locations. QFOS, Orange County MUFON, uh, certainly the Clarksburg, West Virginia archives, things that I've collected over the last 30 years. Um, and that's kind of how it all got started. But I wanted to put this in a concise format that could people could read in one day, period. You know, I don't want it to drag on for four weeks. Get it done in one day and you'll you'll have it. You know, you, you got to be done in one day for sure. Oh, finally. I finally got Firefox to work so we can share some of the some mm -hmm. of the stuff from the yeah. book. But but what I mean is that a lot of these cases are little known. And didn't you have a certain archive that you were drawing some of the some of the case files from? Yeah, from QFOS, from the QFOS archives. Yeah, some of those cases were, were buried there for 40 years. They'd still be there uh, if someone didn't dig them out. And what I always thought was weird is going there for three years, nobody else was there. <laughs> nobody else used 
the the library. They didn't take advantage of it, which just shocks me. You know, it just yeah. Shocks and me. we just we just talked about it. I don't know why, but there was a university and about an hour from me that the Stanton Friedman Archive first got sent to, and I was gonna go. And Grant Cameron went and and told me that you need you would need a month to go through all of the Stanton Friedman yeah. stuff. They didn't have it very well organized, and now they've sent it on to Canada. So now to see it, I've got to go to Canada. But you've spent a lot of time going through weird sort of uh, passed away researchers or people's sure, sure, archives, yeah. right? Definitely, yes. And I talked about these stories that I hear. I hear that you have this huge, monstrous collection of UFO-related material. Like you got a warehouse full of stuff. Is that accurate? Uh, more than one. More than one. <laughs> you've got. Actually, I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to embarrass you. But I've heard you got three. I heard you got three warehouses full of UFO stuff. Well, no single point failure, right? Wow. That's it. <laughs> and where did you get it all? Just been collecting it for 30 years, 35 years. And wow. You know, go to different archives. People donated things to me, and I just held on to it. You know. Plus, I've been interviewing people and taking their notes, sketches, putting it all together, and didn't throw anything out. So there's enough material to last for the next Ice Age Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's really, really interesting to me that you uh that you, you really are obsessed enough to collect that much stuff. Somebody's heard... gotta do it. Somebody's gotta do it. Yeah, I guess for future generations, right? right. Like you don't mm -hmm. want you don't want you don't want that stuff to go to waste. And a lot of times if somebody dies, you know, their their relatives might not know the significance or importance of it. So you go and kind of talk to the family and, and you know, let them know that it's important to preserve some of that stuff. I can I can give you an example. Um, there was a re researcher called Joel Carpenter. He's almost completely unknown in this field. He passed away a while ago. His father contacted me and said, you know, basically he said, I've got four boxes waiting for you if you want them. So I jumped on a plane and flew all the way over there and got them. <laughs> and he was going to throw them out. So that's how you have to save it. Wow. We have to save these things. We have to preserve an important part of our national history. You know? Yeah, and we talked about we talked about some other recent people that have passed away, and and you you basically anybody that passes away, you try to at least see what you can do to preserve some of that stuff, right? Sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Wow. So, you know, along with uh, along with UFOs, you've, you've also had this incredible interest in aviation and, and really yes. high-tech things. And you and I talked off-air about um, about uh, Mark McCandlish, mm -hmm. right? That is correct, yes. And you, you were kind of a fan of his? Uh, a fan and a friend, yes. I considered him a father figure. Very good. We did uh, quite a bit of artwork together, and uh, it was a highlight of my life doing drawings with him. Highlight of my life. It was just a religious experience. I'm just telling it like it is. And how, how do you feel about the recent problems uh, or, or the recent conspiracy land fairy tales about his tragic death? I think it's a straightforward case. I don't know if I believe in what we're, we're hearing. I just think it's it's a straightforward case. You know, yeah, because what you presented that first time, I think I believe what you presented. 
Yeah, and people don't know, but people like Michael Stratt and others did do some of their own independent work to see, right. you know, if there was anything to these fairy tales and these conspiracy land, you know. But to me, it just seemed like people trying to profit from a man's death, which really rubbed me the wrong way, you know. Right. You know, you I did grew a very up, good assessment. Very good assessment. Yeah, thank you. And I, I grew up, you know, looking at Mark McCandless high tech drawings of airplanes and getting very inspired to build rockets and stuff so you know it's a really tragic loss for the world don't you think oh no doubt i mean i've said it before there will never be another mark mccandlish no way and you know you're talking about seeing his artwork and being inspired by it absolutely i was inspired seeing the cover of popular mechanics and popular science where he had these photorealistic color illustrations that jumped off the page and, and grabbed you grab your attention it's otherworldly there's no one that yeah. can do that Nobody especially photorealistic it looked photo like realistic. a photograph yeah you know you can you can go down to the uh naval air museum in pensacola they have one of his original paintings there the the painting of the f-14 coming off the aircraft carrier mm -hmm. if you look at the uh starboard part of the boat of the aircraft carrier where the water line meets the hull Mark has this splashing wave that is like splashing up against the steel hull of the ship. And then he's, he has this water that's still adhering toward the sidewalls of the ship. And it's like dripping down. Mark's the only one that could do that. I mean, the guy or would think to do that much detail on a splash. That's right. That's yeah. Right. He I seemed mean, to be very detail oriented. All, all of his lines were completely crisp. They were sharp. They were like pinpoint accuracy. And then his shading, he used to tell me like he would uh, channel Da Vinci when he shades his drawing. Now, he was kidding, of course, but we were just <laughs> talking about that. And it is that the level of shading that he does on these drawings is otherworldly. There's no one that can do it. He just had this. I had some things where I gave him a concept. I gave him a, all the reference works, all the materials. But then there were things about houses that, I wasn't sure about. I'm like, Mark, just go with it. And I'd sit there and watch him draw. And he'd just draw houses perfectly scaled from nothing, just from his own brain. It was incredible. Yeah. I miss it. I miss it. Yeah. And I'm sure doing? I'm sure we're gonna continue to miss it. Somebody is uh is asking what your opinion is on William Tompkins. I I met William Tompkins. Uh Genius guy, for sure. And if anyone wants to see his work, you can go to the Miniature Engineering Museum in Carlsbad, where they have his original ships, and they look like they were built yesterday. It's wow, unreal. It's unreal. But what do you think of his stories about aliens and stuff? I just don't know. I've read the book. I've read the book, I read the book and it read like a horny old man to me. He was like, I all, just the, don't all the aliens were hot chicks that wanted to bang him, right? I don't know. Yeah. They were all like hot Nordic chicks with big breasts that wanted to bang him. What do you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Interesting character for sure. Interesting though. guy, yeah. And somebody else is asking, uh, Michael, what do you think is happening in the exo field these days? Um, can you be more specific about exo field? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Uh, Maybe exopolitics? I'm not Victor, sure. 
See, uh, here, here's the thing. We're getting a lot of UFO people in here that want, just want to know what you think about different things. So Victor Caliero yeah. is here all the way from Australia. And he says, I'd like to know Michael thought, Michael's thoughts on the Westfall UFO case in Australia. Yeah, we can cover that if we want to go into it. Uh, I have the book pulled up, but I have to share my screen, right? Yeah. Can you share your screen? Because I'm having a real hard time here. All I right, just have so to allow me, it once you share your screen. Like you can share one share tab screen. from G from G uh, from Google Drive with the book on it or whatever. Share a screen. <laughs> I'm a terrible show host. I'm like, you do it, guest. I'm a, I'm a loser. I don't know what's going on. I can't share from Firefox. It's not letting me. Okay. So if I pull up my book. Yeah, and then you go down to that middle middle button in StreamYard, and it says share. And then you want to share, like, browser tab, probably. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, we'll see if you can't figure it out, because I'm having a real hard time. I apologize. I don't know what happened, but... Google was not working for uh, mine, and I'm getting the browser has blocked your screen. Entire screen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you can so share your entire one. screen. Just be sure that you're not you're not sharing anything you don't want to. No, right? that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, and I can uh, see like a Windows desktop right now. Good, good. Pop okay, up so what you want to share. So you can see oh, this, there right? Go. There we go. Yeah, there okay. we go. All right. Well, why don't we? Oh, by the way, I let me just yeah. say. There's yeah. a guy named Jonaside who watches my show and keeps asking me to make slides, okay? Jonaside, oh. we don't have slides tonight. We have a book, which is better yeah. than slides. This is amazing yeah. stuff. Better than I could do, Jonaside. So I hope this satisfies your slides. Mm -hmm. All right. Why don't we... Okay, so can you see this, Stephen? Yes. Yes. You can see it. Okay. Yes, and that why means the audience can as well. Why don't we? And I'm sorry for making you do this. Oh really no, that's okay. But we're with you, brother. <laughs> we're going to hit you with the 22-inch rims right here. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> UFO Magical Mystery Tour, and and this will incorporate the book as well. So, a pictorial history of lost, forgotten, and obscure UFO encounters. And uh, quick announcement: here's where you can get this information, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to be able to verify this on your own. Don't just trust me. Go out and do your own research. Uh, the visual aids used in this presentation are computer-generated forensic composite illustrations which originate from actual UFO case files and eyewitness reports. So here's where you can get the material. QFOS, which is now under the jurisdiction of David Marler in Albuquerque. NICAP APRO MUFON, Invisible Residence. Um, have you read this book, Stephen? Oh, yeah, Invisible yeah. That, that is one for everyone. Everyone must, I'm not telling you what to do, but everyone <laughs> yeah, that was, that was one of my this favorites. book. You, you cannot walk away from reading this book and think that there's nothing to this. There's just no way. I mean, when they released the Condon Report, I'm sure you know this, 51% of all UFO cases are in point of fact USO cases. And they didn't even include one USO report in their entire report. They missed 51% of the phenomenon, which I can't believe. Uh, Uninvited Guest by Richard Hall, another monumental book. You can't walk away from that book and think there's nothing to it. David Marler Collection, uh, UFO News Clipping Service, We'll skip down to Leonard Springfield collection, Gray Barker UFO collection. So just to give you an idea of where this information came from. Now, this is a little bit too involved here. I put together a timeline. I broke this down really day by day, hour by hour. 
this has been authorized by uh, Don Schmidt. So this this checks out, this tracks with the Roswell event. And uh, we're hearing more and more about UAP. We're hearing about the June 25th report in the Pentagon. We're all waiting for this. My yeah, prediction is going to be a nothing, nothing burger. burger. That's my Maybe nothing burger. Nothing burger. You know, there's no droids here. Keep moving on, basically. So <laughs> these are not the UFOs you're looking for, Michael. These are not. I think, <laughs> I think that a great deal of what we're seeing in the media right now is uh, is drones. They may be advanced yes. drones, but I think yeah. that it's a lot of drones. That's what I think we're seeing, not alien yeah. spacecraft. And therefore, yeah. I have very, you know, I'm interested in drones a little bit, especially super high tech drones with high capability, but not as much as I'm interested in seeing proof of alien spacecraft flying around, you know? Right. So this is a photograph, what you're looking at here, ladies and gentlemen. This was taken by Don Schmidt at the actual impact site. So this is July 2nd, 1947. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and go to the next one. Now, this is Tom Bogan. You'll see we've got Mac Brazel on horseback, and then we've got a seven-year-old boy named Timothy D. Proctor. Now, the way they rolled back at this time, everybody, is that if you were old enough to walk, you were old enough to ride horseback, and that's what they did. So here it is on the morning of July 3rd where his sheep would not cross this debris field. All this debris just spread over a large area. And then we do believe that there was a 10 foot wide by about 200 foot long trench or, you know, gouge in the plains at this, at this time. And so that's what we've illustrated here. So this is the morning of July 3rd, 1947. And I wanna take you through the entire case, bring you to the site, bring you into the hangar as well. All right, so here's, we got the crash retrieval operation. July 8th, 1947, and all the components in this story are represented here. So if you look at the back, we've got multiple eyewitnesses on downtown Main Street in Roswell that did see an 18-wheeler low-boy tractor trailer go right to Hangar P3, Building 84. There was also an ambulance truck. Now, according to Don Schmidt, there were five bodies recovered. One was still alive. Uh, over here, we've got uh, a Jeep section here. We've got a six-by troop transport. Now, the, the impact site happened very close to a water retention facility or a water tank and also a windmill as well. So we've got there. Now, also according to Don Schmidt, the Roswell craft was not a saucer. Repeat, the Roswell craft was not a saucer. What it was was an basically an egg-shaped craft the size of a Volkswagen with a dome on top. And that's what you see right here. Now they were approximately four feet tall. They had spindly arms and legs. Pappy Henderson said they were squiggly. They looked like Casper the Ghost. They were wearing a light colored silver one-piece tight-fitting flight suit that they didn't know how they got in. So that's what we're looking at here with the crash scene operation. This is July 8th, 1947. Now, Roswell Main Street Convoy, we've got the paper boy here. And we, according to Don Schmidt, and you can read this in Witness to Roswell, there are at least two paper boys and at least 20 separate eyewitnesses that saw this military convoy that had two Jeeps up front, 18-wheeler tractor, uh, trailer low boy truck, and then two Jeeps behind that on its way down Main Street, uh, Roswell, to Roswell Army Airfield. 
home of the 509th bomb crew. But they said that there was a tarp covering an egg-shaped craft that looked just like what they retrieved prior to with ropes covering the tarp and the whole thing was covered. You could not see anything below this tarp. That was going right to the uh, 509th bomb group. Now, and, and apparently this was not a common occurrence in, in no, this was the not main a common street occurrence. of Roswell, yeah. Right after all, you know, because by the time it got July 7th, it was like electricity throughout all of Roswell. This story was burning up the whole town. Everyone heard about this. Now, there was a B-29 called Straight Flush that taxied over atomic bomb pick number one. And what they ended up doing is, is they were loading a crate into the bomb bay. So they had this hydraulic cylinder that would lift up the atomic bombs, put them into the B-29. Well, they did the same thing here, but instead of a bomb, it was a crate. So what were they actually loading in the crate? And this is the uh, illustration of what we believe could have been the autopsy as well. So this is, would have been after July 9th, 1947 at Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio, uh, all within a matter of days. And my question is, if it was just a weather balloon, why do you need an 18-wheeler tractor low boy trailer going down Main Street? If it's just a weather balloon, that doesn't make any sense. We also have reports of police operations, you know, military police operations that were cleaning up the debris field. They were crisscrossing the debris field for three days, two teams of 50 men. And then when they got home, some of the people that were near the bodies, their, their clothes <laughs> reeked of the odor so bad that they had to burn their clothes. Now, that doesn't sound like a weather balloon to me. So we should keep that in mind as well. Okay, now, moving on. We always talk about June 24th, 1947 being the Kenneth Arnold originating point of ufology. Well, if you go back in time, it's actually the 1897 mystery airship wave that took place in Sacramento, also in downtown San Francisco. And what their people were reporting is this gondola-shaped craft with what looked like an airbag on top and then a wing on either side, something that looked like a rudder, and then these powerful, Stephen, powerful beaming spotlights that came down that caused absolute chaos in these cities. Yeah, and I really I really love this, uh, this mystery airship. I've seen other depictions of it, but I think you nailed it better than anybody. And it looks so steampunk to me, you know? Yes, this that's thing. right. And it happened that's in 1897. Right. So for people that think that UFOs... Yeah, for people that think UFOs are a new, you know, a new thing or, or just started in the 50s or 40s, it's been around longer than that. We have the Aurora case as well. That's one of my favorites. So <clears throat> there were people screaming through the streets. There were horses bolting. There were covered wagons that were flipped over. People didn't know what this thing was. I mean, it parked itself over uh, Sacramento, San Francisco. It made it to the East Coast. There were thousands of eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of newspaper clippings. And if we go ahead and move forward here, here's some of the original drawings that had gone to. Some of these craft had these hmm, 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Anchors coming down. There were eyewitness reports of laughter coming from these crafts. <laughs> That's there funny. Big black dogs on the deck of these craft. There big was, black dogs. This is yeah, getting crazier and yeah, crazier. You, you can't make yeah. this stuff up. You can't make it up. There were big black dogs reported on the deck of these craft, and then right next to the dogs were these very eccentric, well-dressed inventor types that had top hats. They were <laughs> on the craft too. <laughs> There's like the Monopoly guy on this thing. That's, That's right. Crazy. That's right. That's right. So if you just look at some of the bullet items here. Number one, the wave actually began November 18, 1897 in Sacramento. Number two, the object cast down brilliant beams of light on the city before it moved towards San Francisco. Number three, eyewitnesses described, uh, described the craft as being 150 feet in length with four rotor-like arms. In some cases, anchors attached to ropes were dropped from the mysterious craft and laughter could be heard originating from the interior. By May of 1897, virtually all the sightings ended. And so here we've got an enlargement here, and you can see the well-dressed inventor type uh, just in front of the, the description of the craft itself. But that's what they're reporting, a mechanical-looking machine with, with, with these wings on either side suspending this gondola. I mean, this is, this is what they're reporting. Do you get any sense from from aviation history? I mean, could this have been early Zeppelins or early... Uh, well, groups? I have to give credit to Walter Bosley. I think he has nailed it. If anyone's writ, uh, read his books on the 1897 Mystery Airship Wave, he makes a very good case for uh, man-made technology. And if you think about it, what were they doing on the West Coast, right? Because if you look at... Stephen, do you know how many people live in the state of California in 1849? Well, I could imagine because of the gold rush, it was a pretty populated place, right? Well, there were only 12,000 people in the entire wow, state I did not of know California that. Wow. back in 1849 during the gold rush. So what it looks like, if you put it all together, if, if there really was this NIMSA, you know, the Sonora Aero Club, 
and they were a bunch of rich executive inventor types that were financed by groups from New York. It sounds perhaps like they were trying to figure out an efficient and covert way to transport gold from the gold fields of the West Coast, Northern California region to New York, but do it secretly. That's what it looks like. That this oh, that's interesting. So they could just, yeah, because I mean, they wouldn't be taking like thousands of pounds of it. So maybe a Zeppelin or a blimp would be, or balloon kind of would be a good way to do that, right? If Well, if Charles Delshaw is correct, because he was the artwork person within this NIMSA group, the Sonora Aero Club, he said that they figured out a way to negate gravity. And it was something called NB gas that to this day, we don't know what it is. That's what these things were filled with. And they could go 100 miles an hour against the wind back in 1897. That's what the reports are talking about. This is long before uh, December 17th, 1903 at Kill Kill Devil Hills in North Carolina before the Wright brothers. They were doing these things. All right. April 24th, 1964, Socorro, New Mexico. Everybody knows about the Lani Zamora case. But I want to point out that before this thing even landed, because Lonnie was chasing after a speeder when this all took place, before that happened, there was a group that was on a family vacation. They were in Socorro, New Mexico, and either this craft or a craft just like it, probably this one right here, Stephen, this thing flew right over their car at about one foot altitude at high rate of speed. And this family, they stopped by the police department, they filed a report, And the report, if you read it, it says, you people really fly your planes low around here. It's actually in the report. (laughs) It's in there. I'm not making this up. So Lonnie Zamora, he's chasing the speeder. On a quarter of his eye, he sees this egg-shaped craft. He says, you know what? I'm out of here. So he gives up the chase of the speeder. He goes after this craft. He goes over this kind of mountainous, rocky hill. And then parks his squad car, gets out, and what he sees off into the distance is about a 20-foot-long elliptical egg-shaped craft. It was kind of an off-whitish color. It had four pogo landing gear sticking out, resting on landing gear. It had an exhaust nozzle at the back, on the bottom of it. And then he said that not only did it have an inscription on the side of it, which you can see right here, but then he said that there were small statured you could say humanoid looking beings that were wearing a one piece tight fitting flight suit that were white in color. Now, if you read the report, it says that he got within 300 feet of the craft. That apparently is not correct. The actual distance was 24 feet. He got within 24 feet of this craft. Now, when these two beings saw that they were being observed by Lonnie Zamora, they climbed into this craft. And this is where it gets interesting. There was a banging noise, Stephen. And then two seconds later, there was another banging noise. And then out from the bottom of this rocket nozzle was a blue colored flame, not a campfire orange flame, but a blue colored flame. This thing took off, hovered there, and then slowly disappeared. But I want to drill down further. And just so that you know, this is here's the newspaper, New Mexican, April 27th, 1964 flying object visits region. Uh, And then here is the Socorro symbol. Now for 55, 60 years, we've all heard about what this symbol talks about, what it looks like. So here's a representation (laughs) 
yeah, according to the actual sketch, right? So if you if you take the one that we've known about for 50 years and you revolve it 90 degrees left hand, right? Then you take this TP thing, you revolve that 90 degree right hand, and then you take that small little dash line, you connect that, you get CAI, you invert this, you get CIA. That's what we're looking at here. However, there's a new book written by Ben Moss where he drills down really deep and he shows you what the actual insignia looks like. And that's what I want to show you right now. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the actual insignia. It was an inverted V with three hash marks. That is what Lonnie Zamora actually saw. So we've been kind of led down this road all these years. This yeah. is what it actually looks like. <clears throat> now, I asked the question, why where we sold this bill of goods. So here's the question. Why did Lonnie Zamora sign off on a fake symbol? The symbol was changed by US Air Force Major Holder for the simple reason that providing a fake symbol, if any other cases came up and a witness reported the fake umbrella symbol, then they would know that the witness was lying. By Lonnie signing the fake symbol, Maybe drawn by Holder. Lonnie was uh, signing a contract with the government to keep his mouth shut on the symbol. It was country, God, then family in those days. So this is what I was told by Ben Moss, and I wanted to reproduce it word for word. So what we've been led to believe is the actual symbol has not been all this time. It's just the inverted V with the hash marks. Okay, now I want to hit you with this right here. Can you see... On the upper part of this thing, the upper left is Socorro. I hope everyone can see this. That's where this actually took place. So it's on the upper map of this uh, section here. Now, just to the right, you'll see this dashed boundary line. That mm -hmm. is the boundary line for White Sands Missile Range. Now, if you go down to the bottom right-hand se section, you see scale in miles. So if you go from zero to five, and then you transpose that back up, and you plug that in between Socorro, New Mexico, and the boundary line of White Sands Missile Range, ladies and gentlemen, the Socorro, New Mexico, 1964 Lani Zamora case took place no more than five miles from the northwest boundary of White Sands Missile Range. That cannot be a coincidence. Oh, that's that interesting. Coincidence. It's within a stone's throw of a military installation testing area. So do you think that it was some sort of U.S. government craft and not actually aliens? But how do you explain the little humanoids then? Well, Midget they, pilots? I don't know. They, they did use small stature test pilots prior to that. And we got that firsthand from Jack Pickett, who saw uh, three flying saucers at MacDill Air Force Base back in September 1967. So it's not uncommon for them to use uh, small stature test pilots. This checks out exactly with Jack Pickett would say. So I'm well, just that's very interesting, you know. and it's interesting to me that this this sort of mistaken mistaking uh, you know top secret aircraft that may be being tested for alien spacecraft seems to happen a lot. Like these recent drone footages with the Navy. Mm -hmm. All of that took place like within miles from a, a drone testing facility. Yeah, off I mean, goes to California. Doesn't it make sense that we exhaust a possible man-made origin first and then 
look at other options? Well, I think we should, but we have a lot of people. It seems like there's these, you know, uh, Grant Cameron called them UFO messiahs that are out there. And, you know, they think they're 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 there to bring us the truth about aliens. But they make these irresponsible statements like no one on Earth has this technology or, uh, you know, this these these were exhibiting flight characteristics thousands of years beyond our technology. And why is that? Oh, they made 90 degree turns. But then we find examples of experimental aircraft that can do exactly that Un- unmanned, but still we have aircraft that can make 90 degree turns. You know, I think you hit it right on the nail. Exactly. Uh, here's some of the bullet items here. Object was seen within very close proximity to white sands missile range. Number two object featured retractable landing gear. UFO featured inverted barn landing gear pads with sharp 90 degree straight corners. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. A mysterious metallic slam. This is right in the book. Everyone can read this. A mysterious metallic slam noise was heard just prior to liftoff and departure. Is that a door hatch closing? That's my question. Number five. A second mysterious metallic slam was also heard prior to departure. Is that a latching locking mechanism engaged? A very loud roar was heard prior to liftoff change in frequency from low to high. Number seven, a blue flame was seen coming from the bottom of the craft as it lifted off the ground. Now, Stephen, if you know your UFO history, what other case do we know of where there was a blue flame coming out of a UFO from the bottom of it? It's very famous. So the Kecksburg? Mm, not quite. Try one more. <laughs> one more. Uh, Cash Landrum? Cash Landrum. That's yeah. right. See there? It also had a blue colored flame. That was very stressful. I didn't want Michael Strat to think I was a dummy. You know, I'm like trying to think here, like, okay, I thought of two. I actually, but but, uh, that that one was my second choice. But yeah. Yeah, you got it. Do you know that Richard Doty, I interviewed him, and Richard Doty claimed that that case was recovered flying saucers, recovered alien spacecraft but they ripped out the power system, the alien power system that didn't work and replaced it with a nuclear power source. I've That's what that he too. claimed. I know. I've heard that interesting. too. And I just think it's very interesting that we've got this blue colored flame coming out of two different craft, two different locations, two different timelines, but they check out. Oh, now let's get to the landing gear of this thing. Now take a look at this blown up illustration here. You can see it has this Inverted barn roof configuration with 90-degree corners, straight angles, sharp faces, flat faces. Does this look like the landing pad of an alien spacecraft? Um, Here's the actual indentation it made. Now, this is the female impression that it made into the ground. You can see the dotted line. So what I did is I did a SolidWorks model, a male version. That gets you to here. This is the enlargement of the female impression here. Now, if we go one more further here, here is the Socorro New Mexico landing pad. Stephen, does this look like a landing pad from an alien spacecraft to you? Well, you know, that would be hard to tell because who knows the way aliens think and engineer. True. But I would think they'd have something a little more advanced than that. Yeah, you would think so, right? So I went ahead and did a three view drawing and you know, look at. And the this is the le- no offense, Michael. Or, n- don't think this is an offense because I mean yeah. it as a compliment. But I just yeah. want my audience to see, like, this is the level of obsession that Michael Scott has. <laughs> he went, 
you know what? This couldn't be an alien landing pad. I'm going to draw it and make models of it and try That's to right. get more information on you're, this. You're not going to get one obsessed else over this. But you did it like a week on this one tiny, <laughs> tiny little detail. Yeah. But, I, but I love you, brother. I love yeah, you for I'm doing it. Ain't nobody else going to do this. No one's going to draw down to this level. <laughs> Tough job. Somebody's got to do it. Better you, you than me, that. dude. I can't draw. So you oh, got to no, do it for do us. You I can teach you to do this all. in five minutes, but... I, I haven't seen anyone do this before, so I thought, well, we got to do it, right? So just look, look at the sharp corners, look at the 90-degree angles, look at the flat faces, like someone put this on a milling machine and, and milled it out of solid aluminum billetal. That's what it looks like to me. This does not look like an alien landing pad leg at all. You, you would think it would be like fully integrated, seamless, and round, and swept into the landing gear uh, stands itself but that's not what we're seeing here we're seeing 90 degree corners and anyone who knows anything about nature is nature almost never has 90 degree corners almost never will you see this very rarely will you see any kind of configuration in nature like this so it's just another little piece of the puzzle we're just putting it out there now so so what what do you think do you think this was like top secret uh some kind of top secret experimental craft that they were flying around and absolutely absolutely yes i do yes i do mm -hmm. they had plenty of time because if you look at the reference works the reference paperwork from 1954 1955 they were trying to crack the gravity barrier and they had about 10 years to look at it and then here we have 64 boom we have it so it looks like they poured money into trying to crack the gravity barrier. Yeah, so you know what I always I always found interesting is that you can find references, all kinds of references to all these different major uh, aviation companies that were looking into electrogravitics and anti-gravity sort of technology, and then it just disappeared. They were all over it for a period of time, and it was in magazines and newspapers, electrogravitics, electrogravitics, the future of aircraft, the future of aviation, and then exactly. it just disappeared. And I think that a good case can be made that it disappeared into the black budget world. Well, it looks like it, right? I mean, if you really look at the newspaper clippings, and I think I've got all the most important ones, they were obsessed with cracking the gravity barrier. Not, not interested in it, obsessed with it. They talked about how the first thing we're going to do is we are going to conquer electricity. Okay, so we've got that. Then they said the next thing we're going to do is we're going to conquer rocketry. So they got that. Then they said the next thing that we're going to do. Yeah, and all we need is let's just get all these Nazis and whitewash mm -hmm. their. Yeah, let's just whitewash all these Nazis' history. There you go. Here, how many thousands of people they killed with those V2s? We could shoot one of those suckers to the moon, right? That's right. The, the next thing they wanted to conquer is gravity, and it looks like they've done it. They've done it. <clears throat> okay, so let's move on here. Uh, now, we've all heard about the JAL Flight 1628. Paris to Tokyo over Alaska. Yeah, this is one of my favorite cases. November of the size 17, of craft. 1986. Now, the problem with this case is anytime you hear about this case, you never hear about the beginning part of this case. You only hear about the big mothership part of it. Well, prior to all this going on, the best way to describe this is pilot Teriyuchi 
what he ended up seeing is he, it looks like two Campbell soup cans cut in half. Okay. They were 150 feet in diameter. They had a black plastic piece of electrical tape going down the center all the way down. And then on either side, there were these stair step staggered amber or red lights that were flashing in sequence. That was the first part of this sighting, not the mothership. That came later. They ended up tracking this thing for like an hour and tried to lose this thing. They called ATC. They were given authorization to do a full 360. And these craft paced the 747 going 500 miles an hour in a complete 360 loop. And this is all back in 86. All right. So here we've got the actual Miami Herald article, January 4th, 1987. FAA reviewing data from night Japanese pilot reported. Now, we do have Anchorage, Alaska. We've got the ATC and onboard TCAS. So there's three independent radar sources for this, which I think is very interesting. Here is his original sketch. This is from the pilot himself, the commander himself, the captain of the 747. Outside the windshield, this is what he saw, just like that prior illustration I showed you. And then if you look at the bottom, you can see this walnut-shaped UFO and then the size and scale of his 747 compared to this. So we're looking at you know, four times the size, two times the size of an aircraft carrier, according to the, the captain of the 747. Here he is right here describing it. Now, he lost his job reporting this. Yeah, I remember this. Later reinstated. This is one of the first times this ever happened. Now, uh, this case went all the way to Dr. Greer, May 9th, 2001, on the Disclosure Project. That was the first conference. This was brought up within that conference itself. Now, here's the illustration we put together of the JL-747 with the, this massive acorn or walnut-shaped UFO. He saw that out the port rear window. This is from the pilot. So That's pretty – I always love this case because of the size of this thing. Yeah. Because a 747 is no small aircraft, and for this nope. – for this UFO to dwarf that thing and be described as the size of two aircraft carriers is, is pretty amazing to me. Oh, like how could sure. that thing even fly that big, you know? That's right. The Yukon Territory had a history of these large UFOs. So this is not unprecedented. This is this is something that has happened before. Okay, now I want to talk about this case, which isn't really known. Uh Credit has to go to my friend Antonio Huneus. If it wasn't for Antonio Huneus, no one in the United States would know anything about this case because he's the one who did the Spanish translation into English and nailed down all the points of this particular case. So credit goes to him for doing this. This is June 22nd, 1976, Canary Islands. And if you look at the right side of this graph, you've got a little dot there. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the eastern part of the Canary Islands, that was a Spanish uh, naval ship that first saw this. So what I want to do is I want to take you there right now. Here it is from the deck of the Spanish naval ship Atrevida, three nautical miles off the coast of Punta Lentilla, future Ventura. It's hard to pronounce all these things, but this is what they actually saw. And what I want to stress to everybody is I can tell you for a fact that former President Clinton knows about this case, and so does Hillary Clinton. She knows about it too. Now, how do we know that? How do oh, we know that? Because it was the Lawrence Rockefeller Foundation that funded the research that put together yeah. the briefing document called the Best Available Evidence. Within that briefing document is this case. So this went all the way to the president because the president was given a copy of this. So he knows about this. The yeah, president, and what people, what people may not be aware of is that the Clintons had an interest in UFOs. They do, Before yes, they right. were the president and the first lady. So, of course, that carried over. And once they were in that position of power, both of them have commented that they tried to find the truth about UFOs and weren't given very much information. And I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to uh, take no. a moment to thank Brian McLeod for a kind and generous four ninety nine super chat donation. He says, keep up the good work, Steve. Been away for a minute, but the stuff you're doing is much needed in this field. Thank you for your kindness, your generosity, and your support. We're a viewer-supported show here, Michael. Everything, uh, every dollar helps, right? And helps us okay. keep the ball rolling. And if you want to see great guests like this, Send me, you know, tons of money, and then I can pay guests. Like, you know, poor Michael Schratt. He, he is everybody's favorite volunteer. And I know your time is very short. So but before I forget, I want to just take a moment to thank you and, and recognize you because he's doing a public service coming to my uh, little show here. We don't have that big of a reach. He's normally on much bigger shows. So now he's slumming it with us. But thank no, you for slumming it with us, Michael Strat. It's, it's a crusade. You can't get paid for this. There, <laughs> you can't get paid for this. Uh, anyway, so we'll move on here. Now, here's what's interesting. The town of Guay, Grand Canary Island. Now, we saw the dot. That was the first part. Now, this thing had headed westbound. It covered 85 miles in three minutes, equivalent to 1,900 miles an hour, and made no sonic boom. And if you look at what the people reported here, it's like a boring thing, right? It's just this common CE1 case. It looks like a bright light, a a blob in the sky. No big deal. But what came from this light was very interesting. Here is the original sketch of what the eyewitnesses reported. This is June 22nd. 1976, Canary Island. This is my little sword, so he gets the credit for that. But what they actually saw was this transparent soap bubble, Stephen, that had a platform on the bottom. It had three of these, you could call them monuments, that were on top of the platform. And then there was these eight-foot-tall, you could call them humanoid-looking beings that had an oversized helmet. They were operating levers They had a one-piece, tight-fitting red diving suit, and then there was a clear, transparent tube that went up with blue-colored smoke going up through this tube. You can't make this stuff up. 
Yeah. And you know All what? Right. You know what? When I when I see this kind of stuff, you, we hear various examples that the exterior shell of UFOs can become transparent from the inside or yeah, have some sort of cloaking true. technology. So when I see this, I go, yeah, maybe they let the cloak down and you could see right through this thing it's into possible. even the occupants, right? Interesting yep, it's case. possible. It's possible. So here's the final rendering that we put together of what this thing looked like. But this whole concept of a, of a diving suit or a, a very tight-fitting flight suit, that keeps popping up again and again as well. Now, so here we've got 11 eyewitnesses, including the taxi driver, a doctor, and his patients. It was 25 feet in diameter. So there was multiple eyewitnesses that saw this uh, particular soap bubble, you could call it, operating these levers. <laughs> very unusual. Um, so... We've got the gas that's being, but then we've got this central column. And I think we've seen that central column in other things that we can talk about later. But this was just something that I wanted to present as being something that both Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are aware of. Okay, 1976, Dana Point, California. This one came from the QFOS archives. So the primary eyewitness uh, was driving down the road. She had her two kids with them. So there were three eyewitnesses. All of a sudden, this quote-unquote fat Frisbee goes right past their windshield, and they got a real good look at it. Stephen, she said that this thing had thousands of these computer microprocessing lights that were flashing all these different colors, and it had a red blinking light on top. Here's the actual newspaper clipping article that talks about it, and you can see this thing going right past the windshield. And then here's my AutoCAD rendering that shows you what this thing looks like. Amazing, and this is yeah. not the first time this has happened. There are other cases of this fat Frisbee with these microprocessing lights, all flashing different colors. You know what's okay. always been interesting to me is this yeah. is is the lights on UFOs. But right. you know, I've heard Grant Cameron and others talk about like they it's the circus. They want to be seen. Because <laughs> You, you gotta imagine, like, let's say, for example, Michael, we found a, a primitive civilization on another planet that we could get to, and we wanted yeah. to study them. I think that we would, we wouldn't be, you know, flashing big red lights on our craft as we're surveying these people. It's almost as if they want to be seen. They want us to experience them or have this encounter and tell other people. It just doesn't make any sense to me that they'd have all these flash. And we hear this time and time again. It had flashing red lights that moved in a sequence, or it had, you know, a blue aura around it that flashed. It's it's like they want they want the attention of of these humans that they're interacting with, if they are indeed alien or interdimensional or something like that. It's just interesting to me. What do you you're make of the of the circus? Is it well, a circus? You're so correct, Steve. Well done, brother. Well done. That's exactly my thought too. Even Stanton Friedman, our good friend, the late Stanton Friedman, he even chimed in on that as well because his direct quote was, "Lights on UFOs could only be for decoration. That's it. What do they need lights for? What do they care? Who are they going to run to? You know, who are they going to run into? Um, and not only that is that when we see these craft." The lights are always in sequence, Stephen, like the reds go off, the blues go off, the greens yeah. go off, the yellows go off. It's all in sequence. It's planned. There's an intelligent design behind this. But why would they need it? It's exactly. like decoration. Chris Spaghetti uh, is asking a great question. He's asking what would be the size of this one? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, let's see. I don't know if I've got that down here. I think it was about 40 feet tall, 40 feet across. And I gauge that because of something I want to show you here. But here is the illustration that we put together with Tom Bogan. Now, when we do the cars, we give you not a similar make and model, but we give you the exact same make and model. Uh, <laughs> and color. The, yep, I don't know about the color, but this is the this exact. This is again thing. the detail, the level of detail yep. that Michael's friend goes to to give you the <laughs> best rendering that he possibly can. Yes, I gotta admire and respect. I, the, are you a little OCD or something, maybe? Oh, well. <laughs> We want to get you plus or minus five feet to where it actually took place. Yeah, it is. The, so, the, he goes to the end. Michael Schrack goes to the ends of the earth down to every tiny little detail to make sure that his drawings are as close <laughs> to what what happened as possible. And right, I got to admire right. and respect that for sure. So if you look to the right, Stephen, you can see that uh, bend to the right sign. Now to the right of that, there is an electrical pole, a telephone sure. pole. Take a look at the height of that telephone pole. It will become important in a minute here. Uh, what the witness said, she said that this UFO tipped up 90 degrees and rolled away like a wagon wheel. That's what she said. Wow, that's and pretty so amazing. That's what we've got here. And it, it basically matched the height of this telephone pole, maybe a little bit more. So we're looking at 50, 60 feet across, 50, 60 feet in diameter, and something like that. Solar Warden is asking a great question, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to know what you what you think about this, and also cars, you know, uh, the, their electrical systems dying is a common occurrence with UFO sightings, but Solar Warden asks, Mike, what about cars becoming completely magnetized or showing anomalous radiation? Yeah, well, if you go back to Cash Landrum, remember when Betty Cat, now this was December 29th, 1980, when Betty Cash went to go back into her car, she reached out with her hand. She got her hand on the car door handle and she burned her hand on the car door handle. And it was December 29th of 1980. When she got in there, it was, it was uh, Vicki Landrum who put her hands on the dashboard and her hands basically melted into the dashboard. So my question is, Stephen, do you know what the Air Force tried to do after all this happened? I know that they dug up, well, I don't know if it was the Air Force, but I, one of the things that's always been crazy interesting to me is that the, the doctors who who saw these these witnesses said, you've been, you've been a victim of radiation poisoning. And then I know that for one reason or another, the entire section of road related to the incident was dug up and replaced shortly after the incident. It well done, involved. sir. Well, well done. Not, not only was the burn mark dug up by the Army Corps of Engineers, but they dug it up twice, Stephen. They did it twice. Can you believe that? Twice. Not yeah, only and that, that could have been because of radiation levels. Yeah. If they're, not if, only that. The, the Air Force tried to buy Betty Cash's car Wow, you're kidding. Yep. I never knew that detail. Very few people know that. Yes, they, they tried to buy her car. Now, why is that? Is, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Yeah, and, that and it would stand to reason that if this thing was blowing out nuclear 
fire from the bottom of it, as described by the witnesses, onto the road surface, that the road surface would have been irradiated and they would have wanted to get rid of that. I've mm-hmm. I, I, I've I've often thought that because of the Chinook helicopters that, that were seen and all of these other yes. things, that this was a military test flight. And I talked to Stanton Friedman about this before his death, and he thought yeah. he thought that it was and he worked on these things so he would know. He thought that it was a nuclear jet or nuclear rocket-powered craft in this case. And I just want to take a moment to thank uh, Reemsey for a kind and generous $5 donation with a good question. Are these cool illustrations from Michael Schratt published in a physical book that I can purchase? Or do you Um, want to let people know? Right right now, now it's e-books. physical book, but in the e-book format. And what I am going to do is I'm going to put all of these and more, because we got a boatload of this. In in a hardcover book that you can put on your coffee table, and it'll. I want. I want. I want this book. I want this fully illustrated. They're they're all referenced. Like everything we're talking about here, I've shown you the newspaper clippings of where I got this. I didn't just make this up. These are actual cases that we pulled from QFO. So no, and I just wanted to take a moment to say that uh, you know, Michael, I mentioned this on my show. Like people ask me because we we bust balls on a lot of fakes and frauds and things like that. And, and then people ask me, like, well, is there any UFO cases that you believe? Yeah, there's plenty. And is there researchers? Yeah, people like Michael Schrad, who actually have source material. And the hallmark of a great researcher, and and this and this certainly applies to Michael Schrat, is that he gives you his sources. And you can go after him and find the exact same information he did. He's not using anonymous sources or made-up whistleblowers with fake educations and things like that. And thank you very much, Reemson, for your kindness and your generosity and your support of the show. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, Michael, there needs to be there needs to be two separate categories, I really think, of UFO guys. There needs to be the, the fairy tale hucksters that will sell you anything with terrible sources, mm-hmm. with fake educations and, you know, fake doctors, you know, and and people like you, I put into a separate category or Stan Friedman or some other people. Mm-hmm that I really like because they show you their sources. And I've always liked that about you is that if I'm interested in a case that you're talking about in a lecture, you give me the sources and I can go read more about it and I can find yes. out more, you know, that, that is the scientific method, right? So I'm supposed to be able to provide you with the references and then you're supposed to do your homework and then get to the same results that I do. That's the yeah. scientific process. Yeah, that's how I felt about this recent investigation into Mark McCandlish. I said, I have all the sources. I'll give mm-hmm. them out. I'll give you the names of every person that I talk to and you'll get the same answers that I There do. you go. That there is the go. hallmark. And uh, we want to thank Rilo704 for his kindness and generosity and support. $10 super chat and he has an excellent question. Is it possible to determine the radioactive source by the radiation left behind? If so, then it's possible that removing the road was about concealment rather than safety. Government doesn't care about safety. Yeah. 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 I think they were trying to cover their tracks. Why else would they dig up the road twice and try to buy her car? They tried to buy her car. Yes. Somebody (laughs) with a radiation, with a radiation monitor, a Geiger counter could have certainly proven that that car got irradiated. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the signs of radiation poisoning to a doctor are very plain. You know, yes. they're very they're they had every sign of radiation poisoning that people who are exposed to high levels of radiation get. It happened so, immediately, immediately before they even got home it started happening. 
Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. You know, it's kind of scary to me, though, to know then that our government is just, you know, endangering the public. Why wouldn't they fly that thing out in the middle of the desert somewhere? Maybe it had problems and went off course or whatever. But the fact that they would be flying it in populated areas and just like shooting radiation out on people and then covering it up. This is why I don't trust the government. <laughs> so if there if there were 23 double rotor Chinook CH-47s and then there were a pilot and co-pilot of each one of those, we're looking at well over 40, 45, 50 people that saw this in addition to the three eyewitnesses. So where are the pilots? That's what I want to know. What about the pilots of the helicopters? They know what happened. Yeah, and, and that's another thing. They There's not like six Chinook helicopters flying around for no reason. That's very expensive aircraft to operate, I would think. A double-bladed, huge helicopter usually used for cargo transporting counted, and transporting, right? They counted 23 of these things. So you know it had a pilot and a co-pilot, probably had maybe Delta Force or something. So yeah. we could be looking at 60, 70 people that know. Somebody knows the bottom line of this. You know they do. Yeah, maybe someday we'll get more information. Uh, BS Alert Buddy is, is mentioning, and, and uh, as far as I know, BS Alert Buddy, this is true. Richard Hoagland apparently canceled whatever he was up to with Morningstar, who was the originator of the Mark McCandlish fairy tales and conspiracy theories about his death. So if nothing else, that's good because Hoagland's got a pretty huge platform and we would prefer mm -hmm. that he wasn't spreading false information. And right. Renee, Miss Jonaside has an excellent, she's asking, do you know what happened to her car? Uh, Betty's car? Yeah. I don't know. I think she kept it. I don't know where it is now, but she, she did not sell it. That's from what I understand. But I know for a fact that they tried to buy it. Yeah. That's that's very interesting to me and could be part of the cover-up for sure. I've never heard that little detail. Every once in yeah. a while, I hear a new detail about a case that I had no idea about. So uh -huh. I have and, and was this her just her testimony that you got that from? or No, I, I got that long time ago when I was digging into the newspaper clippings about that case when I wrote an article on it. Wow, so it was in a newspaper became, article. Great. Yep. The, uh, the case was thrown out. The judge wouldn't hear it, and they talked about how the Air Force tried to buy her car. Now, why would they want to do that? Yeah, and, and isn't it true that the family for years they try to like sue the government to get to the truth yes, about what did. happened? Yes, they did. And they got so, stopped at every turn, right? Betty Cash has passed. Vicky Landrum has passed. So Colby Landrum is the only one left. Yeah, the son. And isn't it? It, it was just the 30th anniversary of that case, I think. Mm, 1980s when it happened. So it's been a long time. It's been a yeah. long time. Yeah. Or 40th, maybe. Yeah, I'd have to do the math. Interesting, interesting case. So on this one, it's November 20th, 1956, Danielson, Connecticut, 25 feet across. Now, the woman involved in this case, she was hanging up laundry at the time. Now, we've got it a little bit later in the day so that you can actually see it. And what she saw is what I term the flying vanity light. You got, you got to give these things a name for each one. <laughs> Just like Pablozar, the jello mold, the yeah, right, model. Right. Yes, you learned from the best, Michael Shrad. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, she said that on the bottom of this dome that was cut in half, like a globe sliced in half, 
there were these 24 sockets. Each socket had a bulb on it and then three donuts as well. We'll we'll look at that a little bit later. Yeah, this here, is but, another one with all kinds of lights on it. Yeah. Yep, all kinds of lights. Now this thing dropped down, went over the lawn, almost hit the clothesline, went back up, almost hit the chimney, and then flew away. But she got directly below this thing. She recently died about two years ago, so I missed her by just a bit. But if we'll do an enlargement here, you can see what these uh, sockets look like. They were rotating. They had multicolored uh, lights. But then if you look at these donuts or rings, we'll do a blow up here. That's what it looked like. So you've got the main dome or globe. And then you've got three of these donuts separated by a black band. Now, she also said that on the bottom of these donuts, she could see what looked like Aztec or Inca writing or something that would look like a Peruvian rug, rug borders. That's what she said it looked like. So I went ahead and this is her original sketch. She did a great job. Three page report and an original sketch with all the call offs. I mean, this is exactly what you wanna see. Beautiful job on the drawing of the uh, socket area here. But she describes this whole thing, how it went down. So I took her drawing, did the model of it, did an AutoCAD rendering, and then I did an enlargement on the right-hand side that you can see here. So resembled an ancient Arabic language, also looked like the border of a Persian or Oriental rug, reference design seen on Mayan or Incan pottery. That's what this thing looked like. And if you look at the components of a Tesla coil, it looks this similar, looks yeah. very much like a Tesla coil. Yeah. You know, I, do you know what, Michael Stratt? I almost electrocuted myself building one of those. <laughs> really? I'm not kidding you. I really did. Yeah. I had no, I, I just did, I, I was not a very safe person. Okay. You know, there's very high voltage. So you got to be careful if you're going to build a Tesla coil. Just my, oh, okay. Okay. don't electrocute yeah. yourself. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No, you got to be talking about, you know, 30,000 volts here. All right. Now, moving on. January 1st. This one is great because it's got a cone head. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. All right, so <laughs> the two skiers were going down a ski hill, and this cloud was following them. They eventually make it to this open area, and then from this cloud emerges this kind of like a, a flash. And what they ended up seeing was a dish-shaped craft with three domes on the bottom. And then I, I cannot make this up what can only be described, Stephen, as a garden gnome, okay? A garden gnome that had a kind of a 
green tight-fitting flight suit. He was wearing green boots. He had kind of a crinkly face with a strange-looking nose. He had a, a cone head for a top hat. And then he had what looked like a optical device that looked like a camera. And he was moving it from skier to skier like he was taking photographs. Can't make this up. Uh, here's the original sketch that comes with the article. Source is Gray Barker UFO Collection, Clarksburg, West Virginia. That's where I got this report from. And after about four minutes, there was a black, uh, bright flash. The beam disappeared. The craft disappeared. And then immediately, both skiers had these horrible sicknesses. And one of the skiers had to help the other about an hour till they could get back to the lodge where they were staying. So not only was it a CE1 or a CE2, this was a CE3. So it encapsulated all of the close encounter elements. Interesting. And, and you know what? we I, I've he heard various reports of people getting sick or feeling sick or nauseous when they have some sort of encounter with I guess an alien or or whatever the occupants or pilots of these craft, strange craft are. Have you heard a lot of different stories that relate to that? Yeah, I do. And, you know, you were talking about vehicles being magnetized. That's one that we'll cover here if we have time. But, yeah, it, it's, it is common to have these close encounter of the second kind effects because when you have a CE2, you're talking about physical effects, whether it's a car engine stalling, people getting sick, people getting nauseated, headaches. It's absolutely a CE2 case. Do you have any insight into what you think may be the cause of that, of, of people getting sick around these it people? It could be the frequencies that these things are emitting. That's possible. Um, don't know for sure. Don't know for sure. Yeah, I mean, anything we say would be speculation, but I just Correct. wondered what, what you thought. Because, you know, yeah. sometimes informed speculation is pretty good. No, because <laughs> we've got uh, reports from Edwards Air Force Base with the I think it was the Thunder Screech, which was uh, allegedly the fastest piston powered turboprop aircraft in the world, where even when it was taxiing on the ground, people could hear it from five miles away. And that people that were close to it because the propeller was creating a shockwave and a sonic boom as it was turning so fast the resonant frequency was making people sick that were near the craft. Just the propeller alone was making people sick. Yeah, well, you know, I, I know a little bit about ultrasonics and, and we're talking about these crazy, it's, it's funny, there's another conspiracy theory that just became reality and that is energy weapons. And I know a little bit about ultrasonics and with, with, the, right, uh, with the right electronic equipment, you, you can make people sick, you can make people like, Feel like they're going to have a bowel movement with ultrasonics it's incredible yeah. Yep. yeah i believe it i believe it all right so february 3rd 1983 mobile alabama 210 feet long by 80 feet high so the story behind this one this comes from the afro bulletin want to give my source so you can check it out as well this is one of my favorites from the book yeah because, because it's so unique we see saucers all the time but this one is truly unique yep so the primary eyewitness was driving down the road. It was, uh, you know, a little bit later at night. This is Mobile, Alabama, and she hears this boom noise. Her car starts vibrating. So she pulls off to the side of the road. She opens up the car door. 
she leans under the vehicle to see if the transmission fell out, but that seemed to be okay. So she got back in the car. She drove another half mile down the road, made kind of a curve over to the left, and then off to the right, there was this clearing area that was completely lit up. So she looked a little bit further and she saw this massive, you can't even describe the shape of this thing, very odd looking craft. As we mentioned here, 210 feet long, 80 feet tall. It had kind of this inverted wedding cake as it tapered back toward the aft end of the craft. Now we'll go ahead and start at the upper section here where there was this one third transparent wraparound, clear transparent window. And she could see these humanoid looking beings that were about five foot 10. They were wearing a white colored one piece tight fitting flight suit. So that's the third time we've heard about this. They were kind of like in an antiseptically sterile environment. Now she was. Yeah, that's interesting. Alien. Why don't aliens like loose clothes? Because every time I've heard an alien describe, it's always a tight-fitting jumpsuit, right. flight suit. That's right. Yep, yeah, you got that right. They must just like it's like those dudes that like tight jeans, right? You know. Who they knows? Just, Who just, knows? Yeah. Now below that section, there was another transparent section. Below that, she could see these circular transparent portholes you could you could say below that she saw these six foot square by six foot square boxes with these you could call it a shaft or cylinder protruding out which i do not think are weapons these are not guns now below that section she said that there was a door closing from right to left and she said that on the bottom of the door there was a black colored asphalt road that led into the craft on the left-hand wall of this craft, she said she could see what she turned as tubes, pipes, and cylinders. Now, it's the same tubes, pipes, and cylinders that we've heard of so many times before. Uh, the same pipes that were on the Belgium Triangle Wave, that's 1989-1990. The same pipes that were seen on the January 5, 2000 uh, Southern Illinois case. So that has a historical precedence as well. Now, and on the when you're saying pipes, way, it's it's the bottom of the craft that you're seeing some sort of machinery. Well, if you if you look on the left-hand wall of that open door, you can see pipes and cylinders and things that look, a lot of these people say that it looks like a Midas muffler plant when you look at the inside of these things. Yeah, That's what it actually looks like. Now, on the very bottom, she said that there were two additional transparent gondolas with these same five foot 10, you know, tight fitting flight suit, humanoid looking beings. Now on the upper part of these gondolas, she said that she could see these 24 inch by 24 inch, highly polished reflective mirror devices that were in the shape of a cross. Now standing below this craft was awe inspiring and she could look through these portholes from one side all the way through the craft to the other side. And she said, Stephen, that when she looked into these portholes, she saw what was termed as a crossbeam and girder construction with bulkheads and stringers, like a shipping yard. This thing oh, looks like something that you would see on the East Coast when they're laying the keel of a battleship with all these bulkheads and stringers. That's exactly what it looked like. And she also said that this whole thing looked like it was fastened by rivets, Stephen. We've got rivets on this craft, according to the primary eyewitness. Now, here's an enlargement of the front end of it. And if you look at the left wall, you can see these pipes and cylinders and things that look like silencers. 
maybe some type of a cooling apparatus for a uh, nuclear power plant with some type of a liquid nitrogen being employed. That's what she's describing here, according to what the eyewitness had stated. That's uh, definitely I want to an interesting looking craft and, and a little more unique among among UFO reports because yes. of its, because of its shape and its size as well, right? This would be some something more like a mothership then because of the size of it. Do you think that each of those light portholes is one floor of this of this big craft and it's got mm, multiple it, floors? It, it could have like three different floors, but the fact that the door is opening is interesting to me because that looks like a hangar bay to me. So it looks like something yeah. can fly out of that hangar bay. That's yeah, what that absolutely. looks like. You know, uh, this is the original sketch from the article. You can see the door opening. You can see the tubes, pipes, and cylinders. You can see the bottom gondola there. But this is what was reported. And the whole fact that this thing had rivets on it, that checks out too because we've got 12 separate cases of these rusty bridge rivets that are holding these craft together. It just doesn't sound alien. It yeah, I was just going to say it. I didn't know that aliens would use rivets, right? Because a lot of UFO reports of flying saucers are always like that there's no fasteners or rivets or, or discernible, you know, Correct. human technology on the skins of the craft. This, these, but then there are reports of craft like this that they definitely have rivets. So maybe this would That's indicate... Right. This is some man-made thing. I think that this bears some resemblance to some stealth blimps that I've seen, but it's much more ornate. Mm, you know, yeah, it looks correct. more advanced or more, uh, I don't know, well put together with all these portholes and things like that. That's right. That's right. Okay, so USS FDR, November 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Now, we should mention that this is not the first time that I was going to say that. Yeah, they've yeah. had multiple, multiple. Yeah. This this particular ship, the USS FDR, have had multiple, multiple UFO sightings and reports. Absolutely. And it was the first aircraft carrier to have nuclear, nuclear weapons on power, board. Nuclear power, right? Oh, nuclear weapons on board. Nuclear weapons on board. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that might be one of the reasons why it had this historical precedence for these UFO encounters. All right. So... Here's the scene. It's around 9 p.m. at night, and there's chaos below decks. All these naval personnel are running up to get to the flight deck. Something's going on. I mean, chaos and screaming and yelling and people trying to climb ladders to get. They have got to get to the flight deck immediately. So what are they seeing here? Well, here is the original sketch from Chester Grzynski. He was one of the personnel on board the ship who actually experienced this, and what they saw was this yellow light approaching the aircraft carrier. As it got closer, and this is late 1958, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba area, uh, it wasn't just this yellow light. It was this 200-foot-long cigar-shaped craft that had these square cutout windows, and there were 24 naval personnel on the uh, flight deck here that could see these humanoid-looking beings walking back and forth between these windows, Stephen. That's what they described. Now, they also That's said very freaky. <laughs> that you can see these lines coming off the cigar-shaped craft. Those are heat waves, and they could feel the heat off this craft onto their skin. So right now, it is a CE2. It's a CE3 case, just by definition of this alone. Now, we went ahead and did a rendering, and this is the enlargement, and you could see that one of these beings that was looking through this window of the cigar-shaped craft 
he raised his hand above his head like he was waving to the personnel back on the flight deck of the aircraft carrier. So that's what I, I spoke to this gentleman. Uh, that's what he said. So this is his original sketch. So we went ahead and did a full color rendering and we got to here. That's the full color rendering of what this craft perhaps might have looked like. And if you look in the window here, you can see this beam waving back to the flight tech personnel below the craft. Now we want to take you a little bit closer here. So we'll zoom in. And now you have an enlargement of what uh, may actually have happened on yeah, the U.S. And, and believe it or not, believe it or not, uh, there is multiple. I have read multiple reports of beings in craft waving at people, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? <laughs> it is. Maybe but, they're friendly, right? And this this case is interesting to me because it does bear some resemblance, though it's much larger than than the Tic Tac, you know. That yes. People are seeing in these Navy footage. Maybe it's just a larger version of the same technology. Uh, that's very possible. That's very possible. But, you know, 25 eyewitnesses, uh, that lends more credibility. Now, let's move on. May 26, 1979, Calusa, California. The primary eyewitness was in the house. It was 11.30 p.m. at night. He was watching TV late at night. All of a sudden, Stephen, the TV conks out. Concurrently, when the television shut off, the air conditioning conked out as well. Two things going on at the same time. He gets off the couch. He was still in his shorts at the time. He went over to the back of the house where the circuit breaker is, and there was nothing wrong with the circuit breaker, so that seemed okay. But he immediately noticed that the hair on his arms and the hair on his chest and the hair on his head not only stood straight up, but started crackling too. When he looked up, Stephen, he saw this 140-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. And we'll go to the top here. The top dome looked like a lemon squeezer, a lemon juicer with these ribs on it. That's what that looked like. Now, on the bottom of it, it had these conduit pipes that were tapered back to these straight edges. So there were three on either side for a total of six. On each side of this craft, there were these two prong devices that were coming down. And then when he looked off to the left, he could see a very similar shaped craft, identical to this one, but half the size. And it was pulling power off, off the 500,000 volt power lines, causing them to become cherry red. So that's a CE2 case right there. At this point, these conduit pipes retracted into the bottom of the craft. The second that happened, the prongs retracted 90% of the way into the craft. And then there was a door that popped open on the right and left-hand side. And this gooseneck light popped out, shining a light down to the barn and the house directly below. So that's kind of like the first scene. At this point, this is what the craft looked like. That's the technical engineering drawing. You can see the rib section of the dome. Looks just like a juice squeezer. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that really does. I have a lemon squeezer here at the cabin, believe it or not. So, because uh, yeah. we don't have a lot of power things here, you know, everything well, we have okay. is like hand. Yeah, that's exactly looks like a lemon <laughs> squeezer to me. That's this interesting. Or orange thing. juicer, you know, there you whatever. Go. Orange juicer. So what he ends up doing is he goes to the interior bedroom. He wakes up his wife. He wakes up his two kids. They go to the back room. They pull a blind back, and they can see that large craft flanked on either side by the two smaller craft 
and they are pulling power off the 500,000 volt power line. So no doubt about it, it's a CE2 case. Now, according to the 12 page report on this case, the large craft in the center went from a dead standstill to approximately 27 nautical miles away to the rolling hills in the background of the scene and then back again in less than two seconds, Stephen, with no sonic boom. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Someone's and, and, uh, got the technology to do this. V, v is asking a good question because I'm not sure. Uh, didn't this one have multiple sightings across miles, this case? It, it very well could be. It very yeah. well could be. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, at, at this point, the father said, you know what, we're out of here. So what he ended up doing is, is he packed up his entire family. He loaded them into the pickup truck and they go 90 miles an hour down the road. And they're still in their pajamas at this point. The large craft that was pulling power uh, that, that was in the background starts chasing them. It goes over the cab of the pickup truck over to the left-hand side, then back over to the main cab and then over to the right-hand side. This is all going 90 miles an hour. This is in the report. I'm, I'm not making this up. <laughs> yeah. They eventually, you can yeah, see. Yeah, just, just for the benefit of the of, of everybody watching live or listening to the replay, you know, Michael's got sources for all this, which is why, uh, you know, Michael's work is so much more valuable than the fairy tale huckster UFO people who just make stuff up or have terrible sourcing. Michael gives you all the sourcing. So if you want to learn more about each case, you can. And, and it's yeah. just a. It's like this book is like uh, is like an introduction to a hundred different rabbit holes that you can go down. <laughs> it really is. So, like you it. know, I didn't know if I, you know, I love this book so much. And I did start reading about each individual case more in some of the cases so far. Yeah. So I don't know whether to thank you for such an amazing book or punch <laughs> it in the face because... <laughs> I've been going down some some of these cases I wasn't familiar with, or at least I was only, you know, vaguely familiar with them. But I was reminded and inspired by the drawings like, wow, this is a cool case. Let's read more. And you give mm -hmm. us all the sourcing so we can do that. Yep. You want to document the source so you can check it out and verify it on your own. So at this point, they uh, pull up to the neighbor's house. They screech to a halt. They get out of the car. They slam on the door of the uh, the neighbors, and the two neighbors come out. So you have the original four witnesses plus the two. So six people saw the end part of the large craft disappear. And that was, in a nutshell, the Calusa, California case. But there, this is a multiple eyewitness case, and it had CE2 effects. So yeah, and very it's strong. Inter case. It's interesting to me that they seemed, in this case, they seemed to be siphoning electricity out of the high voltage power lines that's right, right. that's right you yeah, got we it. see various examples of things like that i've heard of cases where ufos hovered over water and they are like taking water from the ocean or uh or i think i'm pretty sure that i've heard other cases where they were taking power from power lines which is kind of bizarre but interesting yep so it's, it's something that we've heard in, on multiple different cases uh, Stigler, Oklahoma, 1961. Two women are driving down this road. It was kind of deserted. All of a sudden, they see this <laughs> white light approaching their vehicle. This was no white light. This was a circular-shaped, disc-shaped craft that had a kind of an inverted dome that was lit up. And then, Stephen, a report states that 
it lifted the car about 16 inches off the ground and it started making the speedometer go 110 miles an hour but the car wasn't moving whatsoever so this is another ce2 case absolutely because it had physical effects and it also affected the power line nearby as well back in 1961. so if it's true that they were researching in 55 they would have had six years to perfect a prototype technology interesting yeah Here's the actual newspaper clipping article that talks about it within this report here. So we've got and that. Where, can I ask, where do you get these ancient newspaper articles? Um, because some the, of them are not digitized. you got to go yeah, to no, those, machine, those old machines. What are those old machines called? They had them at the Philadelphia Main The, the microfiche machines. Microfilm machines. Yeah, you could go through microfilm machines for, for newspapers back to the 1800s at the Philadelphia That's Main right. Branch yeah. Library. And I used to go do that looking for UFO stuff. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yep. <laughs> and Bigfoot stuff. Sure. That's one way you can pull it. Yep. That's one way you can get it. Uh, really br briefly, we'll go over Jalen Hynek's classifications here. Close encounter classification. So close encounter of the first kind is a visual sighting. Lights in the sky. Close encounter of the second kind is physical effects, landing trace marks, broken branches, car engine stalling. Close encounter is the third kind. That's when you meet them. Okay. So that's what we've got for the different classifications. So we've already covered CE2s and CE3s. The CE1s are already a done deal. So you've already got those. Now, here is one. Well, I could stop to ask you what you think of this, uh, uh, you know, CE5 and, you know, people have invented CE4 and CE5. Do you think that, that there's there's valid reason to add on to the original? Well, or you, you know, it's, it's a good point, but I prefer to stick to as close to the nuts and bolts that I can. Yeah. So you don't think That's, you can meditate and meet aliens for $10 you know if you I buy an app? I just <laughs> Michael is very diplomatic too, and he's too kind. He's too <laughs> kind. He, he is too kind. He doesn't want to tell you that you can't buy an app for ten dollars and talk to aliens. So I'll say it, and Michael can have his nice diplomatic. You know, that's good. Okay. All right. So in this case, this was an example of one that was pulled from the QFOS archives. I, I don't think it was ever published. It was never seen. And as soon as I saw the gentleman's original sketch, I said, oh, we got to do this one because he had everything in there. So it's December 26, 1972, Venezuela. And uh, the, the primary eyewitnesses was the father, the wife, and 
their young daughter. They're on the top of their 14th floor apartment complex and they're looking off to the right when they usually could anticipate this airliner coming in for a landing at the local airport. So they look off to the right and they're seeing this orange glow and they're thinking, oh boy, what's going on here? Is this like an engine that fell on fire? The, the guy actually thought that the airliner was on fire and he was making some kind of an emergency landing. Well, as this craft got closer, this was no aircraft on fire. This was an elliptical shaped craft that had a very strange, you could call it a dual inverted globe section with a continuous spark gap going in between these electrodes. Now on the, on the back one third of both the left, right and rear of this craft were these quote unquote cast iron exhaust ports that had these violet colored lasagna noodle flames coming out of them, Stephen. That's the best way to describe this thing. There's really no other way to describe it. They were like violet colored. They were not flames, but he said that they were like an electrical discharge. So here's the technical engineering drawing I came up with that shows you what the craft looked like. You can see the direction of flight. Here's this electrical arc detail with these half hemispherical domes. And then on the center bottom, I've got the exhaust port detail that look like these twin, you could say them twin cast iron exhaust ports. And then the cross section side view of this electrical lasagna noodle discharge. Now, as, Wait, say that again. Electrical yep. lasagna noodle discharge, because that's yep. not a term that I'm familiar with. Is that that's a real technical term, or did you just well, wait? If, no, it, it came with a good it's a description. Yeah, how else to describe this? This is very there strange is thing to describe. Yeah, it's very the, strange. The primary eyewitness said that when he saw the flames coming out of this, because he he asked his daughter to go next door to the neighbor who had a pair of binoculars, and she did that. She came back within time of him being able to see that. Now, this thing passed about 300 feet away from the top floor of their apartment complex, so he got a real good close-up view of this thing through the binoculars, and he said that the flame coming out of these ports did not look like a campfire flame. It looked like an electrical discharge that had this S-shaped lasagna noodle wave to it. That's how it was described. Um, there was another craft identical to this one that passed like a few minutes later. So there were two of these things that went by. So here's the enlargement of these two opposing half hemispherical domes with this electrode. Now there was this continuous blue colored corona discharge going between these two. And then here is the enlargement of these lasagna noodle, you could call them electrical discharges coming out of these ports. Very unusual crap. I tend to believe this eyewitness. I really do because... Yeah, this one is very unique. I, yep. I That struck me when I was reading through this. I go, I've read, you know, thousands of reports of different... Correct. And, and I've never come across a configuration like this. And I, I noticed that you're also, you tend to be like focused on configurations of craft right. and how you can right. compare them like you just did earlier. You said, you know, th this, uh, these, these pipes and, and, and this, uh, you know, patchwork of machinery that's seen right. on some TR3B sightings and seen on this case and seen on this case. This one is pretty unique as far as a configuration of an aircraft go. It's I've very never, unique. Yeah. It's very unique. 
it's it's certainly you know now considering that the talk of the electrical arcing did, would you consider that this is most likely electrically based propulsion system uh i i do believe it's a man-made craft i do believe it and i'm, I'm not the only one <laughs> i'm not the only one uh okay so we'll move on to may 16th 1967 falcon lake canada this is the famous falcon lake case everybody knows about it 40 feet in diameter so the primary eyewitness was stephen nicolick he was a rock hound he liked to look for minerals and so what he was wearing when all this was going on was like very thick jeans he had kind of a thick shirt on he was wearing gloves thick gloves and then he had welder's goggle on as well because he didn't want to get anything chipped in in his eye or anything so as the report had talked about there were two of these craft that were hovering near his location one took off the other one landed about 300 yards from where he was so he walked over to the craft that's what we see here kind of had this polished exterior and there were there was an entry hatch that opened up and not too far to the entry hatch if you look off to the left there was this exhaust port smaller than the entry hatch but Stephen, it had these perfectly drilled holes that were, you know, you could say that it was a, a two-inch pitch. So between each hole, there was a two-inch gap. Perfectly drilled, like someone took a CNC and did this. So he walks over to this thing where this door opened up. He could hear this language that he couldn't decipher uh, when he was looking in this. He could hear this... He, to this day, he, they never, now he passed away a couple of years ago, but he could never decipher the language that these quote-unquote inhabitants were talking in. Uh, and if you look off to the left here, you can see this two-by-three hatch. That's what you can see here. And then the six-inch by eight-inch vent exhaust is off to the left of that. That's the site picture here. So he's looking in here. And then we've done an enlargement so you can see what it looked like as he was looking inside the craft. At this point, the craft lifts up and starts rotating counterclockwise. And that, that exhaust port with the hole pitch in it lined up with his chest and there was some kind of a discharge. It ended up burning his clothes and the hole pitch of the exhaust port matched up exactly with the burn marks on his chest, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with. It actually yeah, this case has always been interesting to me because anytime there's physical effects, you know, that's proof that it wasn't like hallucinated or, or imagined, you know, there's actual physical burns. That's right. That's right. Uh, caught his, his shirt on fire. Uh, he started throwing up. He had to basically crawl back to his home location. He was disoriented. He had uh, medical effects his entire life, continuing dots on his chest. That occurred multiple times. Here's the enlargement here. He wrote a book about his whole encounter. Uh, here's some of the original sketch artwork that went with the, you can see his welder's goggles on. He's got a whole face covering. And then this drawing shows you what the uh, marks on his chest actually look like. There was some debris found at the site as well. And then what I also want to do, and this from, comes from Antonio Hunez. This is the official Falcon Lake landing site photo from the Royal Canadian Mounting Police. 
I don't think a lot of people have seen this before. If you look closely, Stephen, you can see the circular see the outline of where the truck yeah. actually landed. Yeah. So it's definitely a CE3 case. Yeah, and those to me have a lot more value for some reason. I don't know. There's something about you can see the physical effects of the craft landing. You can see the burns on this gentleman or, right. you know, some people even experience scars when they have this right. sort of thing that lasts, you know, for a very, very long time. That You know, one of the things about this case that was interesting to me is the guy was so close, he could have just walked right into this thing. And I don't know that if, if this was me, I would have walked inside. But considering <laughs> yeah. he got burned getting that close to it, I guess that yeah. scared him off maybe from walking inside. Well, it's uh, it's a split decision, right? You have no idea what you're getting into. Or if you're going to be abducted or something and never come back, right? I don't think it was like a defensive thing that happened. I think it was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He wouldn't yeah. have got burned if he was about 10 degrees to the other side. So he would have been fine. But it still goes down as one of these classic historical cases. Now, here's the actual newspaper clipping from the Edmonton Journal, May 24th, 1967. Foul smell persists. UFO cider suffers chest burn. So again, it's a CE2 case because it has physical effects. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, very, very interesting. And I'm sure, you know, like something like this would be hard to hoax unless you wanted to burn yourself. You know, like I just don't see somebody mutilating themselves to, to sell a UFO story. Except well, for being only, in the local paper, this guy didn't really profit from the story. No, I don't I don't think he profited. And he had medical problems his whole life. And these dots were reoccurring on his chest for his entire life. Difficult to hoax that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Great case. All right, October, we'll do a couple more here. October 9th, 1972, Long Island, New York. This is kind of like near the Smithtown area. Uh, primary eyewitness was actually two. So the husband was driving the car and the wife was more bold. She got out of the passenger side and went on to oncoming traffic into the other lane. What they reported saying, I call this the flying iron. It was this <laughs> iron craft. It had these rectangular elongated white lights on the bottom there was a red light on the left hand side there was a green light on the right hand side but then the wife who saw it clearer than the husband because he was kind of had the window rolled down he was looking out from inside the car the wife said that she could see two poles on the back of this craft and at the top of the pole there was a wire connecting each pole as this thing is flying by you know basically almost completely silent so I asked the question, does this really look like an alien spacecraft? <laughs> does this really look, is someone trying to sell us a bill of goods here? This one uh, actually bears some resemblance to like the X-37B, but that wouldn't be floating over a road, you know? Well, it's just uh, interesting that it's it bears a lot of components to these high voltage electrical things that you see on lifters, uh, different experiments that people who are in the community talk about, very similar components. Here's the actual UFO investigator report, February 1973. 
they go into this case in great detail. So, and plus we've got the original sketches from the primary eyewitness. It's a very good case. Here's your original sketch. And you can see her call outs here, red light, green light, tall antennas. Uh, you can see the cable connecting the two poles at the top. This That's interesting. Yeah. That's a little crazy. I've never seen that before on a flying yep. saucer or UFO report. Why would mm -hmm. there be two two poles with poles. wires? Yeah. That's right. Connected. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so let's go over a couple of these historical cases. Now, these are the Otto Binder reports. These were part of something called Our Space, Space Age, which was a weekly column published between 1965 and 1969. And people from all around the world would write into Otto Binder. He would have uh, a, a very good artist draw these cases, and then they would publish them. So I just want to go over a couple of these here. October 12, 1796, on Columbus Day, over 170 years ago, Canadian observers reported an astonishing fleet of airships, UFOs, with portholes and visible occupants sailing over the Bay of Fundy from the Pacific Stars and Stripes. This is back in 1796. People are seeing these craft. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is happening. Now, what we've done now is we've taken this original sketch and we've gone color with it. And so here's what we came up with here. This shows you what may have actually yeah. people were seeing. Could Similar. look like a fleet of Tic Tacs, right? <laughs> Tic -tacs. I hate right. to keep mentioning that, but everybody talks about that Tic Tac case like it's something new. When I've I found know. various, I have found so many different examples of a craft shape like that in different cases going back. Not as far as you found, because you're a little crazier than me, Michael Schratt. You went back <laughs> to, what, 17... 1796. 1796. Jeez. Yep. Yeah. Being reported 1796. July 1868. Villagers in Campagio, Chile, were frightened by a giant armor-plated machine covered with steel scales whose twin searchlight eyes stabbed down brilliantly. <laughs> this is back in 1868. This is long before the 1897 mystery airship wave, and they're still reporting these beaming lights coming down. All right, so here we've got the original drawing. Now we'll go to the color. That's the color. And you can see the scales on this craft. You can see the beaming light coming down. This is all before the Wright brothers. So this is this has been going on. This is not a new thing at all. Yeah, it reminds me of the legend of the Thunderbirds as well. Yep, that's right. The Indian, well, uh, Native American legend of the Thunderbirds were that they were huge flying birds. And some people believe that what they were actually seeing was physical craft and not huge birds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, well, you never know, right? Who, who knows? But it doesn't look like it's something that's not, uh, it's not rare. It's been seen yeah. Oh, no, somebody in the live chat is mentioning, because people keep asking me to do slides. <laughs> Bernard says, great presentation tonight, setting the bar high for Steven's next slideshow. Yeah, I will oh, not be great. doing anywhere near as good a presentation i'm just warning you all so you know we're starting at the top with the very best slides and presentation possible and it's only going to get worse from here i'm just warning everybody can't do better than this i don't think so yeah. all right this was one that also came from qfos archives september 4th 1967 grease 25 feet in diameter now the two eyewitnesses were brothers. They were on the top floor of their apartment complex. They were setting up stereo equipment when one said to the other one, 
what is this and this 25 foot diameter dish shaped craft hovered and i kid you not 10 feet above their heads it was 10 feet above their heads just hovering there and uh this is how they described it quote gliding on an oil pathway in the sky that's how they described it this thing was not flying these craft do not fly using the principles of the Bernoulli theory that we know about aerodynamic flight. That's not how these things fly whatsoever. We're talking about a different technology here. They don't need forward flight to hover. Uh, that's what he's describing here. Just they apparently don't need downward thrust because people have been right under these things. They would feel thrust. That's and in right. Most of these cases of these silent flying saucer type craft, people don't, you know, people have been 20 feet. It's yeah. been 20 feet above them. They don't feel like the thing blowing downward thrust like a helicopter right. or a VTOL jet would be doing. That's so, exactly correct. Now, yeah. here is his original drawing. He did a beautiful job on the drawing. When you see something like this, folks, you can pretty much bank on it. I mean, they're not going to write a 12-page report with a flight path and a technical engineering drawing that gets down to the minutest detail. This, this is a reliable report. Uh, the guy did a great job on it, just a great job. My drawing isn't even close to his, but he, he did a really good job. Now, let's yeah, move on to Father Gill. Gill. This is a great this one. Is June 26, 1959. This is a great case. All right, so we've got uh, multiple eyewitnesses, at least 25 of the local people in conjunction with Father Gill, who saw what they described as a 35-foot diameter double wedding cake so the bottom layer is 35 feet in diameter the upper layer is 20 feet in diameter and they could see what looked like four human looking beings they, they were not alien looking they looked like human beings there were four of them there were two forward on the outer lip of the upper part of the craft itself the other two were further back toward the center they were a little bit more obscure but they said quote it looked like they were setting up equipment, end quote. Okay, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, why would they be on the deck of a flying saucer setting up equipment? That's odd. Yeah, and, you know, very... interestingly, I grew up Catholic, Michael, and if you ask a lot of Catholic priests about UFOs, they'll tell you they're demons. Yeah, I've heard that spirits too. and things I've, like that. I've heard so that too. I thought this case was interesting because it involved a Catholic priest. Now, what, what happened next, though, is interesting because Father Gill... He waved his hand above his head and waved at the beings on the craft, and they waved back. That's what this case is actually called. They call it the they waved back case. That's what this is actually called. Yeah, so now, here we was, see another example of aliens waving at people. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so there was well, we also... We don't know that they're aliens. They said that they were described as human. They human, were described as looking as like human men. Correct, correct. And there was a light bluish white color beaming spotlight that came off at a 45 degree angle. And we'll go ahead and do an, an enlargement here. You can see the enlargement and then the beam waving back. But what's interesting about this is, number one, the amount of eyewitnesses that saw it. And number two, a couple of years ago when I spoke to Paul Heinen, he said, you know what, Mike? Father Gill came to our house in Evanston for dinner one night, somewhere around 1974. So it was Father Gill, Jalen Heineck, and his son Paul Heineck are at dinner engagement. And he said that Father Gill laid out the entire case and he wasn't seeking fame or fortune. He just laid it out. And when I heard that from Paul, 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I said, oh boy, this is, this is a real case. <laughs> yeah, and, and about I don't know. Man. Somebody is asking if is critical thinking being applied here. Michael is using historical sources to create these uh, illustrations and description of what people saw. So I'm not sure, you know, what that comment is about. But just wanted to acknowledge it. You know, well, I mean, look look at the pattern recognition that we're seeing here. Okay, we we've talked about tubes, pipes, and cylinders that's being seen on multiple cases. We're we're looking at prongs and protrusions that we're seeing on multiple cases. We're seeing these beings with the tight fitting flight suits. We're looking at people that waving back this light motif that keeps up popping up again. And so this pattern recognition keeps on popping up on these different cases different times, different locations. It's something that we should consider for sure. Uh, just a few more here. Chicago here, April 2001. I spoke to the original eyewitness who saw, now in this view, it looks more like a cigar shaped craft. The actual craft was circular and there were about six eyewitnesses that saw this. This is at the Ozark hangar at O'Hare airport. It was early in the morning. It had rained the night before, so the tarmac was wet. wet, And this circular-shaped craft comes flying by, and he said that it had 12 of these elongated, rectangular, round-edged lights on either side. He said it had a transparent bubble canopy. There was a circular port on top. But then he said, Stephen, that on the bottom of this thing, there was prongs or protrusions sticking out, and then above that, there were these octopus tentacles that were moving around like it was alive. And at yeah, the end I like of each, I like this part of the. Yep. This is at a great. End of each it's another tentacle. unique thing I've not I've not heard about yep. this kind of thing before. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Nope, that's fine. There was a there was a highly polished chrome ball that was about 12 inches in diameter at the end of this tentacle. That's something that we've seen before too all these prongs and protrusions with these balls at the end of them. Uh, here is the original sketch by the eyewitness. This is the first pass sketch. I have his second sketch, which we reproduced here. This is pretty much almost exactly what the craft looked like it was flying by. Now, what's interesting is when this craft flew by the Ozark hangar, it also flew by an active runway. And 10 seconds after it passed an active runway at O'Hare Airport back in 2001, there was this rumbling, low-frequency roaring noise on the other side of the airport. It was a 747 on takeoff roll. It had almost had a mid-air collision with this craft. If this craft would have passed a little bit later, 
there might have been a mid-air collision. Hundreds of people could have been killed. So, but this thing knew what it was doing. It, it flew on by and uh, they, they got a good look at this thing and multiple yeah, and eyewitnesses. I just want to mention that Sixth Sense is commenting that there does, uh, I'm curious of the sources. Google is failing bad. Very little, if any, information on these cases. These The book is literally called Dark Files, <laughs> right. Little Known Cases. So Michael has copies of, of this archive that he's taking a lot of this information from that is not mostly publicly available information. So, you know, that may explain why you're, you're not finding very much yeah. on Google. These are little, literally the book is called little known cases, right? So that's right. That, that was the know. whole point of the whole thing is to resurrect these historical cases that are very obscure. That was the, the whole bottom line of, of the book. Yeah, a pictorial history of lost, forgotten, and obscure UFO encounters. This is one of the reasons why I enjoyed this book so much, Sixth Sense, because I hadn't heard these stories a hundred other places. You know, how many times can you hear Roswell or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Rendlesham Forest? You know, it just gets old after a while. The reason I enjoyed this book so much is because it is obscure cases that are little known and, and there is not much... Uh, there's not much publicly available information, but this archive that Michael has access to, full access to, has a, a treasure trove of little-known UFO information. And so I, for one, applaud him for bringing this stuff out. And it, this book is sure to be cited as sources for decades to come because of all the information. It's very data-rich, but it's also very enjoyable because of all of these illustrations all of these uh, full color depictions. I right. highly recommend the book. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. And Michael's not getting he's he's not getting rich selling an ebook, friends. Yeah, I, I do it for free. What did you What did you put into this book? A year um, of spare time. It's, it's together all this together thirty years. You know, we have <laughs> yeah. We have and what do you sell? What does the ebook sell for? Like I think it's seven ninety nine. You know, yeah, you it's know, eight I bucks. Do it for free. Yeah, I do it for eight. free. I do it for free because it's a crusade. It, it belongs to everyone. It belongs to everyone. Can you explain yeah. a little bit about the what is it called? The Kufos Collection. Yeah, the Center for UFO Studies, that used to be near downtown Chicago, but is now under the jurisdiction of David Marler in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's got the original eighteen file drawers that make up thousands of cases. They basically had the world's largest private collection of UFO cases in the United States period. But at this point, with that collection plus David Marler's original collection, he now has all of the, he's got the largest private collection period in the United States. There's Even no one- Even bigger than yours? Has. Even bigger than yours? I would say bigger than mine because he's got wow. the original file drawers. That these yeah, and for, for those that don't know, like uh, I, I want to, I just want to mention that there seems to be this this multitude of what I call right-click researchers, which oh, means that's a good term. yeah, if wow. they can't, if there is so many people that if they can't find it on the internet, they're not going to be able to do any anything with it, you know, mm -hmm. and and conversely, there was people. And, and I would count like Stanton Friedman and Grant Cameron and you, Michael Schrad, an alien scientist and a few other people that I'm aware of that will literally get on a plane and go to Chicago because there's a UFO archive out there that will let me dig into it. Yep. And this is the this is the good stuff. 
friends. This is the good stuff, the stuff you cannot find on the internet so easily. So right. yeah, kudos to people like Michael Strat and others who actually will get on a plane or get in a car and drive eight hours someplace to go and get this information and translate it and bring it to the public. What a great job you did on this. Thanks a lot. Any anything for the research? Anything for the research? And I think we'll we'll go ahead and do this one here. So this this is my favorite Project Blue Book case. I just love this case. I love this case. All right, March twenty third, nineteen sixty six, Temple, Oklahoma, about five oh six in the morning. The primary eyewitness is a man by the name of Eddie Laxon. Now he is an electrical engineer instructor at Shepard Air Force Base. He's driving to work in the morning, and all of a sudden, Stephen he encounters something that's blocking the road. It's like landing right in front of the road. It's blocking his car. And what he, he gets out of the car, he kind of walks toward the front of the vehicle. And how he described this thing is, is he said that this thing looked like a bowling pin. It also looked like a fish or a perch. Now it had, uh, it was about 75 feet in length. It was eight feet tall. It had a bubble transparent canopy that looked like it was taken from a World War II B-26. Just after that, there were two high-intensity beaming spotlights going toward the front end of the craft and then also beaming toward the bottom. The whole thing was propped up on what they looked like these quote-unquote lunar landing gear legs. Now, after the forward lunar landing gear legs, there was an air stair door with a cutout leading in toward the interior of the craft. And there was a, I can only describe it as he described it. He said that there was a man, not an alien, a man. He was wearing two-piece military green fatigues. He had a baseball cap with the bill turned up. He was shining a flashlight toward the bottom of the craft like he was inspecting something. <laughs> like he's yeah. trying to fix it, right? <laughs> he's yeah, trying to is, fix this it. This is bizarre because the craft, if, if you just look at the craft, that looks like alien spacecraft, right? <laughs> but then the guy outside of it is in military fatigues and looks completely and totally human, which not, of course would indicate not entirely, right? Well, well, what I'm saying here is uh, not only did he look human, Eddie Laxton in the original report said that if he could see that guy later that afternoon downtown, he'd recognize him. That's how close he got to this guy. Now, if you look on the top of this craft, it has this spire or stinger that goes back to term and terminates into about a, it's about an eight inch diameter ball at the end of it. That, that's the fourth time we've heard this now. This is the fourth time we've heard of these prongs with these balls at the end of them. Now, after the air stair door cutout entryway, there was another one of these three and a half foot, uh, foot diameter clear transparent bubble portholes that was divided into four equal pie segments. Just after that, Stephen, were the letters written in black lettering, TL4768, written on the side of the craft. Okay. Now, as we go further toward the very back of this craft, it had flight controls that are just too small to be effective for this size of a craft. So I don't think they were actually flight controls. Now, I'm going to move forward here. Here is Eddie Laxton's original sketch. And if you look at it, number one, it's very rough, okay? Very rough. Sure. Number two, if you look at the dimensions, the top dimension for the overall length says 75 feet. 
okay? And if you look at the very right-hand side of the drawing, it says eight feet. So if that represents eight feet, and you project that dimension up to the top, then this thing is way out of scale. 75 feet should be way off to the left. That means the entire craft has to be stretched to the left to make it come into scale. So I spent 12 hours a day, you know, like an entire day going over this drawing, trying to fix all the areas, clear it, clear it up. And this is what I came up with. Here's the final rendering of what yeah, the craft That, that looks more scale, right? Yep, this Correct. is more, more to scale, more to and scale. And again, here we come back to Michael's incredible attention to details. You know, he wanted, he, I know how, you know, look, I'm the same way, Michael. It bothered him that this drawing was not to scale. So he oh, said, yeah. I'm going to take 12 hours, whatever I have to do, I'll do some math and we'll get this thing to scale and get a more accurate representation of it. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Now, here, here's another thing that points to a man-made uh, origin of this craft. The, Eddie Laxon said that he could he could see on the arm, the upper arm of this quote-unquote man wearing the two-piece military green fatigues. And I've got the enlargement here. Enlarged view of military rank type symbols seen on sleeve of person near craft as identified by Eddie Laxon. So it had these ranking chevrons or yeah, military like rank bars, chevron. right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Now, what happened next is very interesting. When this man, this quote-unquote man, who was wearing this, this uh, baseball cap and a flashlight, when he saw that he was being seen by Eddie Laxton, boy, did he hustle up that ladder. He climbed up the ladder. <laughs> yep. He closed. Like, oh, shit. Somebody's watching me, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. So he closes the door, and then... Stephen, in the report. Now, this is this is not me talking. This is the actual Air Force Project Blue Book report. You can go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you, you can, can read this report. This yeah. You can pull this case yourself. It's a Project Blue Book case. This is the official government report here. He said that when he closed the door, there was this high-pitched drilling noise, okay? Like someone is engaging a Wimshurst generator or, or powering something up high-pitched drilling noise, then this whole thing lifted off the ground. It hovered there for about 30 seconds and then shot away like a spark on a grinding wheel and made no sonic boom. This is back in 1966. And I will add, a truck driver saw it as well. So it wasn't just a single eyewitness case. Yeah, it's interesting because it looks like it has some sort of tails. You, you mentioned the control surface, but it's tiny at the back of it's the crane. Tiny. And yeah. that wouldn't be enough to affect it unless it used some sort of weird propulsion system and, you know, that was just needed for little adjustments or something, right? So if you follow the logic and you follow the timelines and you look at the newspaper clippings that talk about a breakthrough being made in October 1954, they had a good solid 10, 11 years to work out a, a prototype. And here we have a man, he's wearing a baseball cap <laughs> yeah, unless aliens are baseball fans, I, I don't think this was aliens. Yeah, there's a high pitched drilling noise, and if you if you look at this spire that goes on the top of this craft with the ball end of it, what does that you know remind you of? Here's the actual index card of this case. If you go back to this drawing, this is exactly what the downtown San Francisco trolley cars 
used to use when they make contact with the electrical cables above them. This is this is high voltage electrical charge we're talking about here. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I would virtually bet everything I've got that this is a man-made craft. This is not an alien spacecraft. We just have to call it like we see it. Not unless aliens have baseball caps and military fatigues with sergeant bars on them like we do, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, really strange. Yeah. Here is the Daily Oklahoma, March 1st, 1971. That This is a picture of Eddie Laxton himself. Object sighting now rude. So what does that mean? It means that he regretted even talking about it, which actually adds credibility to the case because he was being ridiculed for even speaking about this so and the truck driver saw it as well so it's not just uh not just eddie laxton but so there's multiple witnesses to the there same were multiple event. eyewitnesses that saw it yep it wasn't just him that always is a convincer for me you know one person seeing something is something but when you have multiple witnesses reporting the same thing that's corroboration that's right, that's right. so Anyway, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be a part of your program. Are you kidding me? This has been one of my favorite shows I've ever done. And by the way, I want to thank you because this was the most well-attended. We had over 80, some 85, I think, in the live chat. This has been the most well-attended live stream I've ever done. So thank oh, wow, you so that's much. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. And, you know, listen, uh, for, for those that don't know, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think that you've been sort of like uh, not doing a lot of public appearances. I know you were on Alien Scientist recently, but before that, mm -hmm. you were kind of taking a break. And and I want you to know how much everybody in the live chat has enjoyed this and how much people want to hear from you, Michael. So I hope you won't be a stranger here. I'll do. Listen, I'll do anything but blow you if you come back and do this again. Okay, <laughs> I gotta have you as a guest again. I'll do we anything to blow you. Anything we you want. Do it. All right, good. We can come good. back and we'll do another segment. <laughs> we got but yeah, right, are we, we're done sharing the screen, right? We're yep, done sharing the screen. Okay, good. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I want to thank you so much because you were one of the people that you watching you taught me that government secrets don't have to remain secret, and I could go and look into things and in some cases, force the truth out of them, whether through FOIA or through good research or talking to people that worked on different projects. So, yeah, thanks very much for inspiring me and so many others because you no do problem. this no amazing problem. work. No problem. All right. I'm going to throw you out of here and we're going to do okay. a quick wrap up. <laughs> thanks so much, Michael. I hope that Thank you, you won't be a stranger. I can't wait to do this again. We'll do it for sure. Yep. All right. You have a great night. All right, friends, there you have it. Boy, what a data rich. This has been uh, an amazing show for us here. Uh, so I hope you will please do me a favor, really, especially in this case, because this one's so data rich. There are so many great stories here, so many great illustrations. And Jonah side, I might not have slides, but Michael Schratz got amazing slides and I brought him here to show you his slides, right? Uh, great presentation. What an amazing uh, researcher. And author uh, Michael Strat is so glad to get to finally speak to him in person and take you guys off on the journey with me. Listen, friends, you hear me say it all the time. I'm always happy when there's an audience. And tonight we had the biggest audience that we've ever had here. I can't tell you how happy I am that I could take you all on this journey. You know, uh, I talked to Michael a little bit off air, but said, no, let's talk on air and share it with my friends here at Truth Seekers. 
so glad that I could do that. I want to thank uh, the uh, the super chat donators for tonight, which is Ky- uh, uh, Rilo704, Reemsey, and Brian McLeod. Uh, thank you very much for your kindness, your generosity, and support. I want to remind everybody in audio land, please come and look for Truth Seekers on YouTube. Just put Truth Seekers, one word. Look for the weird guy with the sunglasses. That would be me. And come and join us in these great discussions that we have during the live chat. Until next time, friends. Uh, and listen, I am so happy. What a great audience. What a great show we had tonight. I want to once again thank our special guest, Michael Schratt. I hope he won't be a stranger. Until next time, friends. My name is Stephen Cambion. Good night and God bless all of you. <laughs>
acknowledging that. So Rogue Status with a kind and generous $5 donation who says, this show sucks much less. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So listen, I've got a little bit more time. Uh, I'm not doing very much tonight. I start my nightmare this weekend, though, which is this is the last weekend I'm here without my wife and children. I have to clean this entire place. Um, but I've got some time tonight. I'm not going to start on that until tomorrow morning. So Rogue Status, thank you for your kindness, your generosity, and your support. Every dollar here goes into helping uh, make the show better. It goes into helping, uh, you know, continue to move this ball forward. We use the money to pay for StreamYard or the software we use here, or also to pay for the distribution through our audio podcast network with Spreaker. We're now in like 412 or five, I don't know how many. I've lost track of different audio distribution uh platforms and so we use the money to keep moving the ball forward here to increase our reach to get me a bigger bullhorn uh tonight was amazing as far as attendance goes this was a really great show and i honestly i learned a lesson because i used to do things i used to do these things like if i was going to have a guest especially a known guest like michael shrad or or alien scientist or somebody i would make nice graphics and i would I would let people know on Twitter days in advance. I would tweet it out five times or six, eight times before the appearance, you know, in the week leading up to it. And I haven't really been doing that. So I learned a lesson because I just started doing that for Michael Stratt's appearance yesterday. And I think it had a huge effect. A lot more people, people were sending me messages. Um, and, you know, I think it's important, too, that Michael know, uh, you know, how much people really want to hear from him. So thanks, Rogue Status, for your generosity and your continued support. There is a there is a money button down there. If you like shows like this and you want to see this good quality content continue here, throw us throw a couple bucks in the hat. Failing that, the best other way to uh, to help us is to please like, comment, subscribe, and share these videos. Share the links with your friends and share our channel link on your social media. Tell people to come and subscribe. We're having a good time here. In the live chat, always a good discussion. All are welcome. We have believers here. We have skeptics. We have skeptical believers. We have, uh, you know, true believers. All are welcome here to take part in the discussion. Uh, yes. And uh, Jonasite is still busting my balls about slides. I, I, I'll have some slides. But now you guys are spoiled because we get this incredible quality level present professional presentation from Michael Schratt, and now I'm going to look like a two-year-old with crayons trying to compete with him, okay? But I'll, I'll do some slides for you, Genocide. I will. And Bernard Conkin mentions it has slides. You guys are crazy with the slides. I'm going to have to learn about all about slides, right? Uh, Renee, I'm a computer science guy. I think I can handle slides, but I don't own PowerPoint. That has been the problem. I'm trying to do it with uh, Google Slideshow or whatever the Google. There's a there's a free Google Slide thing, right? And uh, you know, it's not going real well. Otherwise, I would I would have had them already, right? <laughs> Genocide. Oh man, with a kind and generous two dollar donation, forcing me to forever uh, make slides. Slides. Everyone loves slides. Genocide says that, and and of course, every time Genocide makes uh, a super chat donation, well. Actually, I would do it even if he didn't, but now I'm going to be forced to hear about David Wilcock needs a mustache because he'd be much more believable and cooler looking with a mustache as well, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> 
my kids did animation. No, my kids are four and nine. Neither of them are doing animations, right? Andrew Whitley uh, says, Truth Seekers was a good show, but we need slides, though. You guys are killing me. You know what? I'm going to dig deep, Andrew Whitley. I'm going to dig deep, and I'm going to do slides. I'm going to dig super deep, and I'm going to learn to do slides, right? Yeah, Bernard Conkin mentioning... How am I supposed to compete with Michael's slides when I do my alchemy presentation? So not fair. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the drawings for my comedy. Yeah. Am I going to, I'm going to make slides of cartoon drawings of, of like crayon drawings, Renee. That's not going to look good after somebody like Michael just came here with these amazing, crazy, amazing. Yeah. It's called Google slides, crazy, amazing uh, illustrations. Right. Yeah. And I, I have to say like, uh, you know, Michael Strat is really who got me into the, the rabbit hole of black budget projects. And I got to tell you, if you think UFOs is interesting, go start digging into all the projects that the United States government is working on with the black budget money. These things called USAPs, unacknowledged special access projects. Even the senators don't know what they're building out there in the desert. And I want to know, don't you? We'll, we're going to get into it, friends. Uh, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't have, I couldn't keep Michael here for nine hours. So I thought it'd be best if we, if we have him talk about these obscure UFO cases and this book, I'm telling you, I love this book. It's eight bucks, really. Uh, give him, give him, give him the benefit of the $8 doubt. It's, it's really worth it. Jonas, I said, great show. Seriously. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, Michael Schratt was on my original list. I, when I started my last show, the audio podcast, uh, The Midnight Hour, I had a list of 50 guys in UFOs that I wanted to talk to. And I got to tell you that I got to most of them, but Michael Schratt was one of them that he was busy. He, you know, nobody knew who the hell I was, too. And, uh, you know, when I started The Midnight Hour show, like six people would listen to me. So, Guests would look at, you know, go, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I want to give you two hours if only, you know, 10 people are going to listen to your show or whatever. Uh, or maybe Michael was just busy at that point, but I didn't get to him for the midnight hour show. When I started Truth Seekers, I made a new list. Here's the UFO guys. Here's the guys, all these guests, not just UFO guys, but different people that I wanted to have as guests. And Michael was literally at the top of that list. And uh, luckily, I got to talk to him a little bit when I was doing research into the Bob Lazar case because he had these um, he had these letters from the guy, you know, who was at Testers, uh, who designed the model with Bob Lazar. And I thought he could give me some insight. He was very kind and helped me. You know, you can tell that about him. This guy loves to dig in to research. Right. And the level, like I said, the level of detail. Right. Yeah, six cents. PowerPoint is currently $139 on Microsoft site. I refuse to pay that much for it, six cents. I will find a Linux equivalent or another alternative. I'm not going to pay Microsoft $145 because their software is garbage. Their operating system is garbage, and the software they make is garbage too. Um, don't trust Microsoft. I'm having a real tough time. For some reason... Uh, StreamYard, all of my graphics files, like the backgrounds, all of the video bumpers and everything wasn't showing or was showing up like, uh, you know, 
like something got trunciated. So I couldn't use Chrome tonight. I'm forced to use this stupid Windows because StreamYard sometimes doesn't like Linux's sound. Something that, There's something weird with uh, sound sources in Linux that StreamYard doesn't like, which causes me to have a lot of microphones don't work in StreamYard, but they work everywhere else in Linux. So I'm working on the issues and, and we'll have it. A lot of people commenting what a good show this was. Thank you all very much. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Bernard Conk and I will share when I do find one. So I just wanted to really pop back here and uh, give some time to the live chat. You know, I already gave my sign off, so it feels weird to keep continuing here. <laughs> uh, but I want to thank everybody, uh, definitely thank everybody for coming. This has been uh, one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. Uh, you know, recently, I got to tell you that things are really looking better for our show. Like we're able to get guests of that quality, like Michael Schratt. And uh, that tells me that things are improving here. And I did, I couldn't help it, but I did post on Twitter. You know, some people recently have tried to damage my reputation or turn people away from our show. And uh, it really backfired because just more people wanted to check us out and see what, what, what was the controversy. What are people talking about? So I say, if you want to talk smack on me, keep talking because it only helped. You know, it helped us get a bigger audience, really. And uh, isn't that funny? You know, uh, I guess... People intended me harm, but really helped me because they kept talking and talking and talking about me so much that many people that have never seen our show came and checked us out and decided they liked us. And some of them are staying or continuing to come every show, which is that is a great, great thing. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what else to say here, friends. I just didn't want to uh, end the stream without a, and oh, Renee says 65 likes. Awesome. Yes, please do smash that like button and also i noticed something on google analytics a lot of people uh a lot of people say oh i never get a notification from youtube when your show's on but it seems like there's only like i think it's something like 250 people prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Have hit the notification bell. So certainly if we've got, you know, 16 or 1700 subscribers, it's only sending the notification if you hit the notification bell, right? So hit that notification bell and then you'll get a notice that we're going live for a live show every time we do. The other best way to know when we're doing a show is to just follow me on Twitter. It's at Stephen Cambion on Twitter. My name right there, one word, at Stephen Cambion on Twitter. Follow me on uh, Twitter. I announce each show sometime before we do them. I'm trying to improve on that. 
but generally we're we're doing sunday through thursday 9 p.m eastern standard time though i am thinking of changing that because there's an awful lot of shows at 10 p.m and i can see sometimes the drop off in other words the show starts at nine takes a while for people to fill in the live chat about 9 30 we reach the peak of our viewership and then 1001 it seems like a lot of people jump out to go to another show so we may move the show to 8 p.m uh wow i thought i did fix it maybe i'm copying and pasting from the wrong one i did fix it in one of them six cents six cents is reminding me i need to fix my paypal link yes and i want to uh take a moment to thank everybody who supports us there's there's a few ways to support us there's that money button in the live chat that's a super chat or you could buy a super sticker to support our show uh, we read every super chat and thank everyone for their kindness their generosity and their support uh, or you can sign up on patreon where we do a monthly backstage pass and journal and i post pictures of things and you know you get sort of a preview on patreon for as little as a dollar a month the other thing is to uh, the other way you can support us is by making a PayPal donation. And the link is supposed to be in the about, it is in the about section. If you go to the about section of our channel here, Truth Seekers on YouTube and click the about button, you'll see donate by PayPal, donate by Patreon. Um, yeah, I would appreciate, I we very much appreciate your support. Yes, and people are, uh, AJ is saying, uh, get ms to do a follow-up show focusing on australian events we're hoping to have victor Cagliaro uh on pretty soon who is uh, australian and we can also maybe have uh daniel from the context we haven't heard from him in a while and would like to catch up with him and, and what he's working on what he's up to uh yeah renee renee mentioning that a few people asked about australia ufos yeah absolutely uh I'm down for that because I don't know very much about Australian UFO cases, except for the few most well-known, right? And yes, Sixth Sense, I will, uh, I will fix that. I did fix it, and then I think what happened is that I, I am now copying and pasting from the pre-fixed version of it. So uh, I will work on that, Sixth Sense. And yes, you should always let me know about that. I'm a bad show host. i got to get better at doing a lot of this stuff. Wearing a lot of hats here. Definitely wearing a lot of hats here. So uh, I was mentioning the ways to support us. Uh, financially, there's those three ways to support us. You can make a PayPal donation. You can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month and get the Patreon benefits. And by the way, I just want to mention, I know it's a rough time. So if you really like the show, just send me an email at truthseekershow at gmail.com and just say, hey, I'd like the PayPal, or excuse me, hey, I'd like the Patreon benefits. I'm having a tough time right now or something like that. Don't give me any details. I don't need to know, you know, the details. But if you really like the show and you, you support the show, I'd be happy to put, we have a list of people that are in reduced circumstances or whatever's going on. Uh, maybe they, you don't have a PayPal account to sign up for Patreon or whatever. I'd much rather give the stuff away for free to people who really want it than for people to not get it right so you can always do that as well and the other best way to support us is to like comment and share send these videos to some friends right that really does help because people are finding us more and more and most of it is word of mouth most of it is people sending their friends here going you've got to go watch this show if you like this stuff you would you would enjoy this right uh definitely uh 
definitely helps and it definitely helps with the uh, it definitely helps with the search algorithms too. Engagement is king with YouTube. So in other words, if you comment, it helps us. If you like, smash the like button, it helps us. If you hit the notification bell, it helps it helps both of us because then you know when the show is and then my audience is bigger because they know when there's a show, right? <laughs> so those are the ways, right? It's not always about money. Sometimes, honestly, uh, you can help me a lot more by posting these videos on your social media, right? By uh, sharing with your friends because then the show will grow. And, you know, I'm not that concerned with the finances of the show right now. Mostly we have everything we need. We have a few bills every month that we have to pay for the software or for whatever, you know, uh, whatever it is that we need here but most of the major equipment and everything has already been purchased so really we're just looking into what we can do with the funds to continue to grow the show and uh we may be doing facebook ads and a few other things to try to increase our our viewership here and i definitely want to take a moment to thank all the super chat donors the PayPal donators and the Patreon people, because this is a viewer supported show and you're making, you're helping to make all this possible. You're helping me to basically buy time to do more of this. And I can't tell you, I have such an attitude of gratitude about the, everybody that has been so kind and generous to support our show. It really means a lot to me. Uh, first of all, it means a lot to me that anybody's listening <laughs> you know, we're having niche subject here. You know, we're a subculture here, right? Uh, but I, I really feel blessed by all the people that have really thrown some money in the hat and said, good work, keep it up, right? And I've had this weird uh, deja vu feeling today because four or five people told me something like, uh, your voice is very needed. You know, keep doing what you're doing. And that makes me feel great as well, right? How can it not? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. And I do want to remind everybody listening in audio podcast land, I'm going to remind you once again, come over to YouTube, search for Truth Seekers on YouTube. Just put Truth Seekers in the YouTube search bar, look for the guy with the sunglasses, click that subscribe button, because that really does, really does help us. Uh, we want to grow the YouTube channel. This is the main hub is the YouTube channel. It, it, it is the root of truth seekers and everything comes from there. Rilo 74 says, I'll try to be more active in chat. You guys are awesome. Yeah. You'll always have a good time here. We have a nice bunch of people. Uh, you know, uh, it definitely is a good crowd of people and we have a great audience here. We all get together. We discuss these cases and these strange, mysterious things we all have similar interests, uh, and and it works out really, really well. Um, and you are most welcome, especially if you're listening in audio podcast land. You're missing half of, of the show, which is the interactive part. You hear me. I'm interacting live with the live chat. We read lots of comments. We take questions from the audience, and you too can be a part of that. Uh, Yes, and chat interactions also do count in analytics. They count every chat message that goes in the live chat. So that even even coming here and participating in the live chat and writing a few messages in really, really does help. Um, so listen, I, I, uh, I want to thank, once again, want to thank our guest tonight, the one, the only incredible researcher, author, and lecturer, Michael Stratt. 
I want to thank you all for coming here and spending some time with me. Because honestly, I could have thought of, I had a really good time tonight. And you know, I got to admit that sometimes doing the show, I don't feel like doing it. I'm not really feeling it that night. Tonight I was feeling it. I had a great time talking to a great guest. And I got to have more of that in my life so that it doesn't feel like work. It feels like this is exactly what I, tonight I did exactly what I wanted to do with my night. And I got to take you guys along with me. Thanks so much for uh, coming here and being in the audience. I'm going to say it again. Uh, until next time, friends, my name is Stephen Cambion. Good night and God bless all of you.